This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people's hands that have so much to gain and have such a material motive Subliminal Jihad. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, um, we're going to escape the hellscape of Hotel California, and we are going to jet off to another part of the country and another subject matter that we haven't dug into deeply on yet, uh, which well, is... Really, the- we're really, we're really going... Uh, all over the Satania star system. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going maybe to Uverso. We're going all over Nevedon. We're going all over the place. <laughs> That's true. So maybe it won't be so unrelated since we are in the Satania planetary system and uh, planet 606. Yeah, we're not just going to different parts of the U.S. Uh, we're, we're really flying all over all over the Nevadon, all over the universe, all over the super universe, uh, et cetera. Um, yes. And we Salvington, are going to, we're going to be hitting up Salvington. <laughs> and yeah, we're going to take a look at all those places because we're going to do a dig, uh, into a curious document from the mid 20th century called the Urantia book. Yes. Uh, this was published in 1955, but it was compiled significantly before that. I feel like a lot of people maybe don't or haven't heard of this book. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not super, super big, but it does have kind of its pockets of influence, and it was kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's pretty uh, influential. Like, uh, just uh, in doing research for it, you know, I heard Jimi Hendrix, you know, would carry around a, a copy of the Urantia book, which... Really? Probably was uh, pretty heavy since it's like 2,000 pages. Like you said, I think earlier, it's like 4.5 pounds or something. Yeah, it is. Uh, Like uh, Jerry Garcia said that it was one of his favorite esoteric works. Interesting. Um, So, yeah, it definitely had some popularity, but it's it's little known. It's an obscure... Uh, it's yeah. obscure in, and, in the mainstream. And it, as we will get to later, um, if you are a regular shopper at health food stores or Whole Foods and you, you know, you like relaxing nighttime teas, perhaps maybe sleepy time tea by the company Celestial Seasonings, then uh, you might be... Uh, you might be interested to know that basically a sleepy time tea... Um, 
comes the, the founder of that company was an extremely devout uh, devotee of the Urantia book and actually like built the company on Urantia book principles and all that stuff. We'll get into that later, but um, we will see again and again that like there's a weird convergence of devotees of the Urantia book and like alternative health foods that that pop up in our culture and sometimes in very very big ways, but. We'll, yeah, well, there's we a will... big connection uh, with the sort of world of food and, and uh, health food cereal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the Kellogg's play actually like a very, very close role in the, the Urantia books genesis. And, but yes. yeah, we'll get, we will get to the Kellogg's, that. but it's, yeah. it's some kind of really mind-blowing stuff that we discovered uh, that I, I was not aware of previously. Um, I think, yeah, but I think we should start off kind of with the content of the Urantia book, and we should at first introduce the Urantia book, like, kind of on its own terms. Yes. And its own terms basically are that someone uh, who's known as the sleeping subject, whose identity is is left unknown by the people who eventually publish this book, uh, the most prominent of them being Dr. William Stadler, um, he, the sleeping subject, received these messages from very figures uh, within kind of like a celestial bureaucracy of, you know, varying rank, uh, varying sort of role in this, uh, you know, vast interstellar uh, system and hierarchy. Uh, But they revealed certain things about uh, the true nature of the universe, the uh, nature of certain events in uh, like occidental religious uh, teachings or basic mainstream occidental religious teachings. Basically what this book is, uh, is all about. Um, and well, there's in the first chapter, even of the Urantia book, this massive tome, uh, you can kind of see this maybe serves as sort of a, uh, a mission statement, uh, on, in the chapter titled the nature of God. Um, there's a statement, the great mistake of the Hebrew religion was its failure to associate the goodness of God with the factual truths of science and the appealing beauty of art. As civilization progressed, and since religion continued to pursue the same unwise course of overemphasizing the goodness of God to the relative exclusion of truth and neglect of beauty, there developed an increasing tendency for certain types of men to turn away from abstract and dissociated concept of isolated goodness. The overstressed and isolated morality of modern religion, which fails to hold the deviation and loyalty sorry, the devotion and loyalty of many 20th century men would rehabilitate itself if, in addition to its moral mandates, it would give equal consideration to the truths of science, philosophy, and spiritual experience, and to the beauties of the physical creation, the charm of intellectual art, and the grandeur of genuine character achievement. So underlying all this basically is the principle that it's kind of an update of Christianity, more or less, uh, to 20th century truths or about science, mainly, uh, you know, the idea of outer space and also of evolution, which is often, you know, uh, in this book represented through the filter of uh, eugenics or certain ideas about, uh, you know, the uh, race science kind of. Absolutely. As we will see, the the sort of eugenic solution is something that pops up time and time again throughout the Urantia book. Uh, yes, um, there's, uh, to explain, actually, it's a common sort of esoteric theme, the rainbow. In fact, the whole idea of the rainbow is having seven colors, uh, and, you know, indigo being distinct from violet. If you look at a rainbow, it's very rare that you kind of can perceive this sort of gradation between indigo and violet, but 
Uh, the reason why we consider it to be seven colors in the rainbow uh, is that, you know, seven is a significant number. It's a very significant number in this book, too. God is sort of seen to have, he's a trinity, but there's also trinities within trinities. There's a sevenfold nature, blah, blah, blah. Seven comes up again and again, uh, not only in this book, but in all types of uh, esoterica, especially in the esoteric ideas that were ascribed to by Isaac Newton, who made this idea up. I may be, like, you know, generalizing or using kind of like pop history, but basically this is true that the significance number seven is why we consider it to be seven colors in the rainbow. Mm-hmm. And in this book, there's the idea that most worlds of which uh, Earth or Urantia, because that's what the book is named for, the true name of Earth, Urantia, mm-hmm. um, uh, most planets have these uh, seven, or sorry, uh, these six evolutionary races. Um, and uh, they are basically after the, uh, the colors of the rainbow. Uh, there's the red race, the yellow race, and the blue race. Um, and then there's uh, the second, fourth, and sixth. Um, and uh, those are the, you know, the orange, uh, the green race. Yeah, and, the, the, and there, the there's a race. very kind of curious ranking system that yeah. goes into these six races. I just want to read really quickly to give you a taste of their kind of thinking about this from uh, from book 51, or I forget what they call it, like Report the, 51 or something. Yeah, book fi- the Planetary Atoms. Yeah, yeah the Planetary Atoms. So it says uh, 51, 4.3. It, it's sort of, um, it's indexed yeah, kind of like the Bible, which is yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, on, yeah. on those worlds, having all six evolutionary races, the superior peoples are the first, third, and fifth races, the red, the yellow, and the blue. The evolutionary races thus alternate in capacity for intellectual growth and spiritual development, the second, fourth, and sixth being somewhat less endowed. These secondary races are the peoples that are missing on certain worlds. They are the ones that have been exterminated on many others. It is a misfortune on your that you so largely lost your superior blue men, except, <laughs> except as they persist in your amalgamated, quote, white race. The loss of your orange and green stocks is not of such serious concern. Well, I guess uh, he failed to, to... They missed one orange man uh, who currently occupies the White House. A very uh, bad uh, orange man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I guess if only we had exterminated all the orange men now. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but one of the races in there is... So, like, blue, the blue race is sort of most analogous in the Rancho book to white people, and the indigo race is most analogous to black people. yeah. Um, and they're, uh, basically, yeah, one is certainly much lower than the other. Uh, there's, you know, it's kind of, like, liberal in a way. It's a thing about, like, a lot of these eugenic texts. Like, uh, there's a whole chapter on the reason for the evolution of marriage, and that's where it really gets into a lot of the the race-blending stuff philosophically. Like, uh, you know, uh, and these are called like the Sangic races, I guess, because there's all this weird terminology and, and cosmology and stuff. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he refers to uh, the Pitcairn experiment of blending the white and Polynesian races turned out fairly well. This is when, you know, basically it's a long story, but there are uh, some sailor, British sailors who took up with, uh, you know, uh, some Polynesian uh, tribes and created sort of a society. Um, it turned out very well because the white men and the Polynesian women were fairly good racial strains. Interbreeding between the highest types of the white, red, and yellow races would immediately bring into existence many new and biologically effective characteristics. These three peoples belong to the primary Sangic races. Mixtures of the white and black races are not so desirable in their immediate results. Neither are such mulatto offspring so objectionable as social and racial prejudice would seek to make them appear. 
How nice. Physically, <laughs> such white and black hybrids are excellent specimens of humanity, notwithstanding their slight inferiority in some other respects. Oof. Um, yeah. Uh, he says, when a primary Sangic race amalgamates with a secondary Sangic race, that would be white people and black people, for instance, the latter is considerably improved at the expense of the former. On a small scale, extending over long periods of time, there can be little serious objection to such a sacrificial contribution by the primary races to the benefit of the secondary groups. Biologically considered, the secondary Sangics were in some respects superior to the primary races. Um, so, yeah, and he concludes that the real degeneration of the human species is through the inferior and degenerate strains of the various peoples rather than in the sort of racial interbreeding. Um, but, you know, yeah, there's uh, obviously this is all like very. Uh, but there, there are and, definitely some yeah. essentialist uh, uh, positives yeah. and negatives to every race that they ascribe. Um, um, yeah, well, this is like extremely uh, racist, like the whole, yeah. you know, it's very much. Uh, but the actual ideological, especially in the context of the time when eugenics was not really seen uh, in the same way that we see it now. I mean, I feel like by 1955, the time this book was published, maybe it, started, it was starting to be, but not as much as, as you would think. But yeah, we talked a little bit about on, the, on past episodes about the sort of mainstream idea of like sterilizing certain people uh, in the 20th yeah. century. You on know, the Aquino episode, we talked about how the California eugenics program was uh, in some sense served as an inspiration for the Nazis and their eugenics program in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah. And, and people is... like Lewis Terman and uh, the, what was it called? The Human Betterment Foundation. Yeah. Yeah, which was in Pasadena, which is like really into it. So this is, I mean, this is really going on nationwide. And I mean, as we will see when we get into the biographies, people like Dr. William Sadler were also at the forefront of advocating for eugenics, uh, you know, and forced sterilization and improving the racial stock and things like that in the early 20th century. So it's, you know, it's interesting. Those ideas definitely bleed through. This yeah, this book. book is also very like utopian, very like peace and love, you know, very like very liberal, basically. Um, yeah. And, you know, so this isn't necessarily like super right wing, like a line, you know, like blood and soil. To, like it's really more like, you know, it's it like it was thinkable within like a liberal context to be saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things, you know? And I, yeah, I think there's like, a real strong parallel that people have made to the to basically the Rancho book's influence on what would become the New Age starting earnestly. I mean, it came out in the mid-50s, so yeah. that was kind of at the very early kind of beatnik um, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome kind of era of like, you know, these sort of beatnik hippie proto-hippie new age people and then I think sometimes as you see in many examples with new age stuff that there is a very common theme the kind of cloaking something that is kind of nefarious and has a more than passing similarity to maybe you know something white supremacists or nazis would have been into but kind of cloaking it in this progressive um like capital p progressive yeah. Um, kind of, you know, uh, language and affect that, uh, that, you know, is really all about making the world a better place, you know? So I don't know. It's like, if you think about, you know, yeah, and helping the lower Sangics, you know, to, you know, it, how sacrificial it would be to interbreed with the lower Sangics to elevate the indigo men or whatever. That you feels know, like, like a very, like, you know, sort of lib take from like the early yeah. 20th century. Like, I think we should sacrifice our superior racial stock to like, to help the coloreds, you know, and like yeah, that kind exactly. of, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, 
Um, it's, uh, yeah, and like uh, another great strain in this is the sort of space operatic element of it. And you can see in kind of what's, what my like favorite and the most amusing part of all this, I think, is the sort of uh, space opera uh, rendition of these classic uh, stories from Abrahamic religious mythology. And you can really see the racial mm -hmm. element come in and the take on on Adam and Eve. Uh, it's very, oh God, uh, yeah, yeah it, uh, it all starts with um, the Lucifer Rebellion and the Caligastia betrayal. Oh my There's God, Caligastia is just, he so, is the... Yeah. The, the bet noir of the Rancha universe. Yes, uh, he's, he's just the the um like Doctor Mabuse of <laughs> it's like yes, just he's this super, lurking sinister figure. He's super evil, and oh yeah, Lucifer and Satan are uh, different people. Um, he's like his assistant. Uh, yeah, it's Satan uh, is Lucifer's assistant. Yeah, Satan is Lucifer's assistant. And they live um, they we live in the planetary system of Satania, of which we are planet number 606. And but like does I couldn't see if that had any relation to the character Satan in the Rancha book. Like, is it just a coincidence that the system is named Satania and then this one guy's named Satan? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's kind of like how, you know, certain uh names of places and people uh might be in common, you know, like there might uh yeah like there might be a town called like jacksonville or whatever and so it might be named jackson so yeah, like, somebody Satania could be named washington Satan, you know yeah exactly <laughs> fair, okay um, fair i'll give it yeah. to them fine yeah um do you so, want to talk yeah, about I, the, do you want to talk about the adam and eve project first or the lucifer rebellion i feel like uh, we should talk well because the the caligastia betrayal and the lucifer rebellion are all like it, without caligastia there wouldn't be the default of of adam and eve so i feel like we should talk about the Lucifer rebellion and all that stuff, but it's all very, uh, but the, the main thing about the Lucifer rebellion is that he is revolting against the universal father, you know, the, the Supreme God, uh, in the name of kind of like a libertarian impulse, sort of the way that, uh, Satanists today kind of represents Satan as he's kind of all about personal. Uh, and in fact, I think he, even makes like a declaration of independence or something. Uh, he does. He's, he's almost. He almost seems like a weird cosmic mix of like uh, of like Thomas Jefferson and like Lenin. Yeah, that's one thing that I find to be sus about this is that like it, because everything is so trickled down. Like there's such a vast hierarchy of these different angels and deities and like Melchizedek's and yeah. stuff. So like uh, like it's almost hard to say like uh who's like good at, like you know it's not as absolute because like god is so aloof from the whole thing and everything is being like executed by these bureaucratic battles like it's very like star wars episode one it's very like uh taxation, <laughs> taxation of trade routes. like for instance let's just dive into the lucifer rebellion yeah yeah um, uh, can, I, can i read the first paragraph yes, of it yes uh, by all means do it because it. it also gives you a sense of like the style of this book yes. and like how how honestly like L. Ron Hubbardy it kind of gets, but it's very Battlefield Earth too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, so Lucifer was a brilliant primary Lananandek son of Nebadon. He had experienced service in many systems, had been a high counselor of his group, and was distinguished for wisdom, sagacity, and efficiency. 
Lucifer was number 37 of his order, and when commissioned by the Melchizedeks, he was designated as one of the 100 most able and brilliant personalities in more than 700,000 of his kind. From such a magnificent beginning, through evil and error, he embraced sin, and now is numbered as one of three system sovereigns in Nebadon who have succumbed to the urge of self and surrendered to the sophistry of spurious personal liberty, rejection of universe allegiance and disregard of fraternal obligations, blindness to cosmic relations relationships so yes tight uh so yeah he was he was like patrick henry uh give me liberty or give me um i, I don't know um ban- eternal banishment it's not really clear like where where did he end up um uh, he i think that his sentence is still being processed i think uh yeah i'm pretty sure lucifer his sentence is still being processed on Jerusalem. caligastia was in charge until Michael incarnated the seventh bestowal of Michael, uh, who is like the real big good guy of all this, uh, who is actually Jesus. Yeah. Um, but he's also like kind of the the sub god of the universe that we're part of, which is Nebadon. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So uh, it's uh yeah, like so he was in league with uh, Calgasian. There's all sorts of like minor heroes and stuff. You know, there's like. Uh, the brave people who stand up and it's all, it's like not waged through like X-Wings or anything, but it's like, they're just debating like in amphitheaters. <laughs> like that's like, yeah, how... yeah. there's not a lot of, maybe that's the sort of pre pre aerospace era kind of, um, I don't know, context of this book is that like, yeah, there's not a lot of like space opera battling, but everything feels very space opery, but it's like, yeah, it's like debates and like, the things seem to be happening through some kind of psychic spiritual means. Like they'll say there was a great spiritual battle and many were killed, but they're not explaining like, is that a, and I think they even said at one point that like, it was not a physical battle, but many people died. Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. Uh, So this is some stuff that happens during the planetary rebellion. So you can kind of see how Satan is like a higher kind of figure or authority. um, But he somehow is, uh, helping Caligastia, who is kind of the real Satan, or it was sort of Satan, at least here on Urantia or here on Earth. Okay. So shortly after Satan's inspection, and when the planetary administration was on the eve of the realization of great things on Urantia, one day, midwinter of the northern continents, Caligastia had a pro- held a prolonged conference with his associate, Dalagastia, after which, so that's two different people, Caligastia and Dalagastia, they were talking, mm-hmm. after which the latter called 10 councils of Urantia in session extraordinary. This assembly was open with the statement that Prince Caligastia was about to proclaim himself absolute sovereign of Urantia and demanded that all administrative groups abdicate by resigning all of their functions and powers into the hands of Dalagastia as trustee, pending the reorganization of the planetary government and the subsequent redistribution of these offices of administrative authority. The presentation of this astounding demand was followed by the masterly appeal of Van, a totally like new character who is like, you know, a real big hero of the Caligastia War, mm-hmm. uh, chairman of the Supreme Council of Co- Coordination. This distinguished administrator and able jurist branded the proposed courage of Caligastia as an act bordering on planetary rebellion and appealed to his conferees to abstain from all participation until an appeal could be taken to Lucifer, the system sovereign of Satania, and he won the support of the entire staff. 
So you can see where this is going. Accordingly, the appeal was taken to Jerusalem. That's like a big, important planet, you know. That's uh, the I capital think, of our system, right? I think Jerusalem is like the capital of Satania, yeah. but Salvington is the capital of Nevedon. Okay. Um, okay, but anyway. And forthwith came back the orders designated Caligastia as supreme sovereign on Urantia. So basically Van went to Lucifer saying, like, he's rebelling, but... Um, Lucifer was like, well, I do declare Cal... And it's like, no, what a betrayal. And wow. it was in reply to this amazing message the noble Van made his memorable address of seven hours length in which he formally drew his indictment of Dalagastia, Caligastia, and Lucifer as standing in contempt of the sovereignty of the universe of Nevedon. And he appealed to the most highs of Edentia for support and confirmation. Uh, and by the way, this is all being narrated by the alien beings. So like... Uh, the, the narrator says, at the time of these momentous transactions, I was stationed on Adentia, and I am still conscious of the exhilaration I experienced as I perused the Salvington broadcast from which told, uh, which told from day to day of the unbelievable steadfastness, the transcendent devotion, and the exquisite loyalty of this one-time Sevy Savage springing from the experimental and original stock of the Adonic race, talking about some heroic human being who uh, stood firm against uh, Calgastia. So anyway, that was... Uh, the Caligastia betrayal. So that was what the whole war in heaven uh, really was. It was this, this is the massive, mil- like this is their interpretation of the Miltonian war. In yeah, heaven. it was this massive interstellar debate. And after that, Caligastia was still on Urantia, but he was like invisible. Um, and uh, so, and there were these evolutionary races that were still kind of existing on Earth, and that's why Adam and Eve needed to be sent so they could upstep the races, um, and upstep humanity. Um, Mm -hmm. would you, yeah. Yeah. uh, You want me to, to... I'll give a little, um, well, yeah, that basically through, I believe, interbreeding with the six different races or most of the races. Well, it's unclear. It's, it seems like, yeah, that was the idea, but you can't like, they're doing something like that. I think that it really was, no, it was through like culture. It, they were trying okay, to like okay. c- because they weren't supposed to interbreed because that is what actually the fall is all about. Is okay, because okay. yeah, that's like the very that's like the very uh, sort of revenge of the Sith type of like a Jedi cannot love situation here, where like what really happened with the whole fruit and everything was that Eve uh, was seduced by. Uh, serpentania or something um (laughs) and like uh persuaded to kind of mate with this sexy guy from the nodite tribes um from the land of nod yeah well then yeah basically the land of nod um so like uh yeah adam you know he came to earth he made a heroic and determined effort to establish a world government but he met with stubborn resistance at every turn. Adam had already put in operation a system of group control throughout Eden and had federated all these companies into the Edenic League. But trouble, serious trouble ensued when he went outside the garden and sought to apply these ideas to the outlying tribes. The moment Adam's associates began to work outside the garden, they met the direct and well-planned resistance of Caligastia and Dalagastia. The fallen prince had been disposed disposed as world ruler, but he had not been removed from the planet. He was still present on Earth and able, at least to some extent, to resist all of Adam's plans for the rehabilitation of human society. Adam tried to warn the races against Caligastia, but the task was made difficult because his arch enemy was invisible to the eyes of mortals. Wow. Um, yeah, even among and, the Edenites, there were those confused minds that leaned towards the Caligastia teaching of unbridled personal liberty. 
um, et cetera. And they caused yeah. Adam no end of trouble. Um, yes. And he was um, he was finally compelled to withdraw his program for immediate socialization. He fell back on Van's method of organization, dividing the Edenites into companies of 100 with captains over each and with lieutenants in charge of groups of 10. Um, it's weird how, know. like, this book more or less confirms that the Bible maybe sort of, maybe it was sort of mediated or changed, uh, like, acculturated to, to Roman or uh, Jewish culture. But... Uh, like, why doesn't, why is there no mention of Van, like, in the new set? Like, I feel like he's such an important character, like, in this, but, like, for some reason. Yeah, and there were no down. contemporary characters alongside, at, I mean, they were supposed to be the first man and woman, so there weren't really yeah. other humans they, around with them. I mean, this also really reminds me of very... upstepping, yeah. <laughs> upstepping. Well, th- that immediately reminds me of um, talking about, you know, this book's potential influence on things today. I mean, if, if you just go turn on the History Channel, like every other show is about ancient astronauts and how, yeah. you know, we were, uh, whether it was like the Anunnaki or the Nephilim or something like that, um, or the, you know, Seraphim angels, um, who are mentioned in the Arantia book a lot, you know, basically the idea that some kind of ET race came down here and either genetically modified us to become conscious thinking, you know, homo sapiens, or they delivered these kind of cultural and technological secrets to us, which is, you know, people always say like, that's how Stonehenge and the pyramids and other, you know, yeah. uh, ancient wonders of the world were built. And, you know, why were there, and, you know, it, cause it, it is an interesting question. Like why, if humans in their modern form have been around for like a hundred thousand years, like what were we doing the first like 95,000, just like running around, like hunting and gathering. And then suddenly we all like all across the world, like we all start figuring out technology and astrology and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a, it leaves the door wide open to kind of, you know, uh, alternative explanations, but the Urantia book is kind of the first one. I think that kind of melds this idea of like God's, giving us, you know, sort of the word or giving us light or, you know, showing us the way, but also like corporealizes it and makes it into like, oh yeah, these were like ET visitors that came to like there. upstep us and, uh, and yeah, evolve there's us spiritually. some predecessors like, uh, Oaspe, which was that book that came out in the late 19th century, which is kind of similar, like, and talks, like, I think that was the first book to use the term starship. Um, and it was kind of a similar premise, but Urantia obviously is much more elaborate. And I think it's a little bit as like purple and like sort of, uh, funny as it is, like, or kind of like cringy to read. I think it's a little bit better maybe than that. Definitely. I think it was, was more influential. So it was a big break of this idea into the mainstream is kind of like, let's interpret religion through the lens of, you know, some of this like interstellar stuff. After we close our eyes on this world for the final time, when we finish our earthly career, we begin our journey towards the physical center of all things and continued growth inward to perfection. We are in Seraphim, and as our native world fades and falls away, we are brought to the first of the seven Mansonians. There we will awaken in our chamber of creature reassembly. We will eternally remember our resurrection day. 
Yeah, um, yeah, and this is also coming at kind of like the first big um, wave of the Industrial Revolution. Obviously, it was, you know, at the very dawn of like air, you know, airplane flight and rocketry had yet to really uh, take off. Sorry for the pun. Um, and, uh, you know, we hadn't gone out of space yet and all these things, but you could say, I, just like how you could see maybe like HG Wells or like science fiction uh, and HP Lovecraft kind of getting popular around the turn of the century. You see kind of people starting to look out a little more and wondering like, what is on Mars? And yeah, you know, consider the idea of like aliens outside of our world that you know could fly here with some machine and uh and then yeah. also the the influence of spiritualism and seances and all that jazz that you know uh you know communing with the ascended masters or whatever and so i think you know you see it all yeah kind of converge um for sure yeah it's interesting because a lot of the people who were kind of around the urantia book were very much opposed to the sort of spiritualist trend and, and the idea of mediumship or communication with the dead uh because you know they were influenced by these the seventh day adventist ideas which basically is that you know when people die they're dead until judgment day so you can't communicate with the dead uh so it's yeah. interesting this is very much like similar to that but uh you know it's from it's not from the dead but it's from these these ET beings. And yeah, definitely you're right that it's, uh, it's a, uh, you know, the theme that really defines this is kind of trying to accommodate these uh, ideas and try to, you know, like he says, you know, bring religion into harmony with like true science, uh, mm -hmm. you know, try to and, uh, make this, yeah, make sense. And um, it, it's like worth mentioning that this book makes a lot of scientific claims that uh, were not, you know, of things that were basically like unknown at the time. It makes, you know, it, it, I think it said, what did it, how old did it say the universe was? It might've said that it was like a hundred billion years old. Um, I know, I'm not sure. I don't remember how old it said that uh, yeah. the earth was. I, I, yeah. I can't, I can't bring to mind any of like these specific claims right now, but I know that it made a number of claims, like some of which were kind of roughly accurate, but then a lot which were uh, basically proven false by science later in the 20th century. Yeah. Well, I mean, the biggest example of that is the race science. And of I think course. that maybe to leave before, maybe we move on to, some of the maybe the Jesus stuff or move on to maybe some of the background of the Urantia book it's good to go into the like the real temptation of Eve and kind of uh what happens okay um and uh uh Seraptatia or whatever uh his name was um he like uh so you know it was the farthest from Eve's intention the book writes uh or the you know these these beings tell us ever to do anything which would militate against Adam's plan to jeopardize their planetary trust Knowing the tendency of women to look upon immediate results rather than to plan far-sightedly for more remote <laughs> effects, the Melchizedeks, before departing, had especially enjoined Eve as to the peculiar dangers besetting their isolated position on the planet, and had in particular warned her never to stray from the side of her mate, that is, to attempt no personal or secret methods of furthering their mutual undertakings. Eve had most scrupulously carried out these instructions for more than 100 years, and it did not occur to her that any danger would attach to the increasingly private and confidential visit she was enjoying with a certain nodate leader named Serapatatia. Yep, Serapatatia. Mm -hmm. The whole affair developed so gradually and naturally that she was taken unaware. So this is very like uh, Anakin Skywalker, you know. Mm -hmm. Serapatatia had become one of the most able and efficient of all of Adam's lieutenants. He was entirely honest and thoroughly sincere in all of his activities. He was never conscious, even later on, that he was being used as a circumstantial tool of the wily Caligastia. No. Uh, no, yes. <laughs> um, he held many conferences with Adam and Eve. 
especially with Eve. And they talked over many plans for improving their methods. One day during a talk with Eve, it occurs to Sarah Patatia that it would be very helpful if, while awaiting the recruiting of large numbers of the violet race, something could be done in the meantime to immediately advance the needy waiting tribes. Sarah Patatia contended that if the Nodets, as the most progressive and cooperative race, could have a leader born to them of part origin in the violet stock, it would constitute a powerful tie binding these people more closely to the garden. And all of this was soberly and honestly considered to be for the good of the world since this child, to be reared and educated in the garden, would exert a great influence for the good over his father's people. So this is all like, you know, very oblique, but basically like he's saying, like Eve, you know, you should have a kid with one of our people, you know. Um, Interesting. Yes. So very Babylon uh, working. Yes. The fateful meeting occurred during the twilight hours of the autumn uh, evening, not far from the home of Adam. Um, Eve had never before met the beautiful and enthusiastic Kano. I'm thinking of Mortal Kombat right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But anyway, he was a magnificent specimen of the survival of the superior physique and outstanding intellect of his remote progenitors of the prince's staff, the prince being Prince Calagastia, you know, so his Mm -hmm. staff, like, you know. Uh, And Kano had also thoroughly believed in the righteousness of the Serapatatia project. Outside the garden, multiple mating was a common practice. Influenced by flattery, enthusiasm, and great personal persuasion, Eve then and there consented to embark upon the much-discussed enterprise to add her own little scheme of world-saving to the larger and more far-reaching divine plan. Before she quite realized what was transpiring, the fatal step had been taken. It was done. No. I I like this one line you quoted there. Eve listened to the insidious propaganda of personal liberty and planetary freedom of action. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, the like core thing is that like she tried to take matters into her own hands and trusting the plan. Yeah. Didn't trust the plan. Uh, She didn't uh, where we would go one, we go all. No, she didn't. And uh, well, actually uh, it's speaking of where, where we would go one, we go all Adam after this, because he knew what would happen to Eve, basically that she would lose her immortality he then went out and immediately mated with some other some woman from the same tribe or something just so that like you know they would God share their revenge fate. it was like a, well no it was like a oh. sacrificial gesture because oh, wow. like she would be punished without him if he didn't so really he was doing it for her but anyway yeah little, so a little bit of a uh, simp but so okay. yeah that's a i think that's a good part of the book because it's sort of the convergence of the like race science theme with the sort of space opera cosmology of the whole thing where like you know really the whole thing of the apple is uh that she decided to take matters into her own hands and uh you know bring the the edenic or race or whatever her uh stock with the violet people too early or, or whatever or uh without the consent of of god or the supreme yeah. directive or whatever yeah 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 um it's very interesting um and um i also wanted to bring up the a couple of the chapters uh relating to a kind of more of their historical conception of the evolution of human government which um in strange in a way like it, it starts to kind of fall away from kind of this like space opera biblical space opera woo-woo stuff and then it gets almost a little more quasi-academic um and more kind of philosophical um and kind of sounds almost kind of like machiavellian in a certain way um but like it says you know it it has a whole section and uh in 
you know, the, the section 70, the evolution of human government, talking about war. Um, so it starts out by saying war is the natural state and heritage of evolving man. Peace is the social yardstick measuring, measuring civilization's advancement. Before the partial socialization of the advancing races, man was exceedingly individualistic, extremely suspicious, and unbelievably quarrelsome. Violence is the law of nature, hostility the automatic reaction of the children of nature, while war is but these same activities carried out collectively. And wherever and whenever the fabric of civilization becomes stressed by the complications of society's advancement, there is always an immediate and ruinous reversion to these early methods of violent adjustment to the irritations of human inter-associations. Um, in pa- but then it goes on to say, in past ages, a fierce war would institute social changes and facilitate the adoption of new ideas, such as would not have occurred naturally in 10,000 years. The terrible price paid for these certain war advantages was that society was temporarily thrown back into savagery. Civilized reason had to abdicate. War is strong medicine, very costly and most dangerous. While often curative of certain social disorders, it sometimes kills the patient, destroys the society. The constant necessity for national defense creates many new and advanced social adjustments. Society today enjoys the benefit of a long list of useful innovations, which were at first wholly military and is even indebted to war uh, for the dance, one of the early forms of which was a military drill. Um, and the, uh, the five things that it lists are, uh, wars had a social value to past civilizations because it, one, imposed discipline, enforced cooperation, two, put a premium on fortitude and courage, three, fostered and solidified nationalism, four, this is the most interesting, destroyed weak and unfit peoples, five, dissolved the illusion of primitive equality and selectively stratified society, um, and, uh, yeah, so um, it's uh, – it also says, you know, I'll just read the rest of this. Um, the nations of Urantia have already entered upon the gigantic struggle between nationalistic militarism and industrialism. And in many ways, this conflict is analogous to the age-long struggle between the herder-hunter and the farmer. But if industrialism is to triumph over militarism, it must avoid the dangers which beset it. The perils of budding industry on Urantia are, one, the strong drift towards materialism, spiritual blindness, two, the worship of wealth, power, value distortion, three, the vices of luxury, cultural immaturity, four, the increasing dangers of indolence, service insensitivity, five, um, again, interesting, the growth of undesirable racial softness, biologic deterioration, and six, the threat of standardized industrial slavery, personality stagnation, labor is ennobling, but drudgery is benumbing. Okay, so that's that. That gives you a sense of kind of their uh, philosophy about like industrial society that were they were living in. Yeah, and, and I think like, it's like it, 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 I mean, yeah. What do you think about that? There's an interesting dichotomy between like yeah, like the the evolutionary races, like the biologic people, and the sort of higher like beings that are like ETs, uh, and like Adam and Eve, and that type of stuff. Like you know, their job. Uh, is to sort of elevate these sort of low biological impulses, uh, you know, sort of guide them in some way. Uh, but because of the Caligassia rebellion and because of the failure of Adam and Eve, uh, there, you know, this has gone awry. And so we're kind of at the mercy of their our biological impulses. You know, it's the whole eugenics project of the human race has gone 
has gone awry in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what it said elsewhere is that we were basically kind of placed on like a planetary quarantine because of the Lucifer Rebellion and the failure of the Adam and Eve Project. And so at that point, instead of having these enlightened E.T. sort of advisors showing us the way, they were forced to withdraw. And now we have to basically sort out... I mean, it's conceiving all of human civilization as a gigantic... ET eugenics project. So it's basically saying that you guys now have to come evolve and develop your own eugenics programs or methods of socializing one another and, uh, and quote unquote evolving um, in order to reach a more spiritually exalted state. Yeah, exactly. And part of that is the sort of revisionist take on uh, the life of Jesus that they have or heavily revisionist take uh, where he's actually the incarnation of the sort of sub-god of Nebadon, Michael. Um, and uh, he actually isn't a virgin birth in this. He's the son of, of Mary and Joseph, but they were eugenically screened and selected carefully by uh, Gabriel, I think, uh, mm-hmm. to be, you know, or they were suggested by Gabriel uh, after eugenic screening to be <laughs> uh, the, the, the parents of the bestowal of Michael and uh, Mary wasn't really like I remember there's like a there's a there's a clear note that Mary wasn't really Jewish like uh, not not really she uh, mm. yeah she was like more of a uh, like genetically she was more of a, a Hittite or whatever what what does it say it's something like uh, I, I I don't quite recall but it's something about her being like you know more Phoenician more of a, a, a Hittite or, or something uh, to that to that effect. Um, yeah, she was a descendant of a long line of unique ancestors, embracing many of the most remarkable women in the racial history of Urantia. Although Mary was an average woman of her day and generation, possessing a fairly normal temperament, she reckoned among her ancestors such well-known women as Anon, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, Ansi, Chloa, Eve, Enta, and Ratta. No Jewish woman of that day had a more illustrious lineage of common progenitors or one extending back to more auspicious beginnings. Mary's ancestry, like Joseph's, was characterized by the predominance of strong but average individuals, relieved now and then by numerous outstanding personalities in the march of civilization and the progressive evolution of religion. Racially considered, it is hardly proper to regard Mary as a Jewess. In culture and belief, she was a Jew, but in hereditary endowment, she was more a composite of Syrian, Hittite, Phoenician, Greek, and Egyptian stocks, her racial inheritance being more general than that of Joseph. Uh, so, okay. uh, yeah. So you could say that her, uh, her bloodline went deeper than an application. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, so yeah, she, she definitely, her bloodline went deeper than the application and, uh, she, uh, Gabriel appeared to her, blah, blah, blah. Most of the key stuff happened, but yeah. And then at the very, very end of all this, you know, Jesus's whole ministry happens, but he's actually, you know, obviously said, as I said, it's the bestowal of Michael, but in the end, there's some stuff about how, uh, you know, we need to fix this. One of the main things in this book is the whole idea of, the thought adjuster, which is basically the conscience or mm-hmm. sort of equated with the Holy Spirit. So the thought adjuster is a big part of this. And, Very uh, creepy, creepy name for like yeah. your kind of the spirit dwelling within you. Yeah, definitely. Like he's the mind controller. Uh, 
the great challenge of the modern man is to achieve better communication with the divine monitor that dwells within the human mind. Man's greatest adventure in the flesh consists in the well-balanced and sane effort to advance the borders of self-consciousness out through the dim realms of embryonic soul consciousness in a wholehearted effort to reach the borderland of spirit consciousness, contact with the divine presence. Such an experience constitutes God consciousness, an experience mightily confirmative of the pre-existent truth of the religious experience of knowing God. Such spirit consciousness is the equivalent of the knowledge of the actuality of sonship with God. Otherwise, the assurance of sonship is the experience of faith. And God consciousness is equivalent to the integration of self with the universe and on its highest levels of spiritual reality. Only the spirit content of any value is imperishable. Even that which is true, beautiful, and good may not perish in human experience. If man does not choose to survive, then does the surviving adjuster conserve those realities born of love and nurtured in service. And all these things are part of the universal father. The Father is living love, and this life of the Father is in his sons, and the spirit of the Father is in his son's sons, mortal men. When all is said and done, the Father idea is still the highest human concept of God. Um, so, hmm. yeah, that's uh, the, the concluding note. Okay, um, and I think the it says elsewhere that when you die, you move on to another planet in in the satania system and yes. don't you move on to like there's seven tiers of planets or seven planets and then finally you get to what would kind of something that's analogous to heaven but it's like actually a planet well yeah there's like the paradise uh like there's a like planet called paradise or something that you go to and then yeah maybe you get to go to salvington or jerusalem i don't remember how many levels there are but definitely you can but that's like you know the fate that you can meet uh in some of these psychic battles or debates that happen with like caligasty and whatnot is that there is kind of an annihilationism kind of inherited from maybe you could say it's similar to that of adventism where like you can just be destroyed completely um, i see in, in soul sleep you know, or something like that or, or, yeah, or yeah, is that beyond that. soul sleep it's where, yeah, like you can just be. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Like that. I think they don't, cause they don't really believe in a conception of hell in the Rancho book, right? Isn't it just soul annihilation? Yeah. I think that you just like, and I think that that is what happens uh, in Adventism as well, that there's kind of just, you just get annihilated. I um, see. And then, and then the chosen who are holy are, are kind of in a spiritual cosmic coma until judgment day where they will wake up with, uh, kind of no recollection of like what happened. Like they'll, in their yeah. mind, it's like going under for surgery. Like they'll just wake up and it'll be judgment day. And that's why yeah. you can't commune with ghosts or actual ghosts. I know Sadler believed in this in a lot of his other writings that, uh, you know, he kind of believed in the demonological hypothesis about ghosts, that they were actually demons. Yeah. And that's why you shouldn't run around and talk with them. Right. Yes, but in Urantia, your soul does, yeah, go off to evolve uh, higher to become, like, part of this galactic stuff. And, and some, like, ascended humans play roles in some of the battles and stuff that they have earlier on, um, or ascended sort of humanoid beings from other planets and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I also want to bring up one more thing in terms of their their kind of history of like their anthropological or uh, history of human civilization that just kind of jumped out at me is interesting. Um, and um, it's about it's it's in a subchapter of like book seventy, which is called Primitive Clubs and Secret Societies. This is kind of about like the history of 
you know, religion. Okay, mm-hmm. so it says blood kinship determined the first social groups. Association enlarged the kinship clan. Intermarriage was the next step in group enlargement, and the resultant complex tribe was the first true political body. The next advance in social development was the evolution of religious cults and the political clubs. These first appeared as secret societies and originally were wholly religious. Subsequently, they became regulative. At first, they were men's clubs. Later, women's groups appeared. Presently, they became divided into two classes, socio-political and religio-mystical. Makes me think of like Masons and the Temple of Set kind of thing. Um, So anyways, secret societies contributed to the building up of social castes, chiefly by the mysterious character of their initiations. The members of these societies first wore masks to frighten the curious away from their mourning rites, ancestor worship. Later, this ritual developed into a pseudo-seance at which ghosts were refuted to have appeared. The ancient societies of the new birth used signs and employed a special secret language. They also forswore certain foods and drinks. And here's the line i really wanted to get to they acted as night police and otherwise functioned in a wide range of social activities uh so basically the urantia book much like uh uh masonic police chief uh david x henry um was basically saying that masons were in fact the first police, the department, first police department or some yes. kind of secret society it was the first police department thousands of years ago um wow. And, uh, you know, it, it just goes on a little further. All secret associations imposed an oath, enjoying confidence, and taught the keeping of secrets. These orders awed and controlled the mobs. They also acted as vigilance societies, thus practicing lynch law. They were, fir- they were the first spies when the tribes were at war and the first secret police during times of peace. Best of all, they kept unscrupulous kings on the anxious seat. To offset them, the, the kings fostered their own secret police. These oh, the is- phrase best of all is doing a lot of work there. Sorry. Like, yeah, just yeah. to say, like, you know, yeah, they, they lynched people, they, you know, and best of all, like, what do you mean best? Like, they what? They kept uh, unscrupulous kings on the anxious seat. Uh, yeah, yeah, so basically they would threaten kings with assassination um, if they, uh, you know, yeah, very interesting. And, and like, were the inventors of spies and secret police. Um, and they said these societies also gave rise to the first political parties. The first party government was the strong versus the weak. In ancient times, a change of administration only followed civil war, abundant proof that the weak had become strong. These clubs were employed by merchants to collect debts and by rulers to collect taxes. Taxation has been a long struggle, one of the earliest forms being the tithe, one-tenth of the hunter's spoils. Taxes were originally levied to keep keep up the king's house, but it was found that they were easier to collect when disguised as an offering for the support of the temple service. By and by, these secret associations grew into the first charitable organizations and later evolved into the earlier religious societies, the forerunners of churches. Finally, some of these societies became intertribal, the first international fraternities. So, I mean... That, that that that's an interesting you know i don't know comparing it to the freemasonic police department like website like the history of freemasonry um i mean it's not it's not a particularly like like all these ideas kind of seem rational mm-hmm. like this seems like a, at least a kind of coherent take about how political organizations and like a religion certain religions and secret society oath-bound societies and stuff in like an early early stage of human civilization kind of evolved i'm not saying that like oh yeah this is 100 percent um accurate because so much in this book sort of isn't um mm-hmm. but the, yeah i mean i think they they seem to kind of know what they're talking about in this section. yeah i mean 
That's interesting. Yeah. And maybe that's a good segue to uh, sort of the uh, more of the context of the revelation, because I think it's interesting to talk about the questions around the, because to what extent it like, you know, what is the the nature of the Urantia book? You know, is it something that's made up? Is it something like where, where does it proceed from? You know, who mm-hmm. wrote this? Uh, yeah. uh, so who channeled yeah. it? Yeah. Who is this mysterious yeah. guy that, uh, that yeah. channeled this from ET? Was this, yeah, exactly. Was this a, a Melchizedek who was saying all this stuff? You know, was it like the Supreme Chancellor of Edentia, like t- saying this uh, take on secret societies or, <laughs> you know, w- uh, was it, uh, was it a demon, you know, like, uh, what, right. uh, or was it like some aspiring sci-fi author? Was it a guy in sort of a trance state, uh, having a weird episode? Ten times the size of Urantia. Half of the Finaliter's world is the probationary nursery for 619 inhabited worlds. What a joy to reunite with children who departed much too soon. Before we depart Jerusalem, near as big as our sun, we will achieve an individuality combining the completed mortal existence in experiential association with the budding Marancha career, both being duly blended by the spiritual overcontrol of the thought adjuster. Cool. Um, so we talked a little bit about the actual content of the Urantia book and some of the ideas contained therein. Um, but now I guess we can get into the very interesting background of some of the individuals who were involved in recording, some might say creating, uh, but definitely propagating this, you know, collection of, you know, channeled scripture. Um and I don't know, like, I think maybe the best place to start with that is with, you know, the, the spiritual, you know, the the spiritual denomination that most of these characters all sprang from was uh, Seventh-day Adventism. Yes. And uh, do you want to get a little... Dr. William Sadler was yeah. sort of the main figure behind the publication distribution compilation of the urantia book he was the mediator uh from the sleeping subject to uh the rest of of the world and uh yeah he he was the one who was concealing the secret subject identity it was known to him and he was prior to that a real devotee of seventh day adventism and of uh, ellen white um, and he actually had worked, as I think you mentioned, he'd worked to kind of debunk um, mediums in the past and uh, was very skeptical of that uh, and opposed to that big trend uh, in the late 19th and to some extent the uh, later in the 20th century um, of the sort of craze of mediumship. Um, but this, I guess, persuaded him and he was very uh, on board with it. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some speculation around the identity of the sleeping subject uh, being uh, his. I mean, the main candidate that a lot of people throw out is uh, Wilfred Kellogg, um, who yes. was yeah his uh, brother-in-law. His brother-in-law, um, yeah. because William Sadler married Lena Kellogg, who 
And yes, it's that Kellogg. It is Kellogg's Frosted Flakes and Corn Flakes. Uh, it is the serial tycoons of the early 20th century, that family, who were all of them, like, uh, almost without exception, were devout Seventh-day Adventists and very prominent um, in the main community um, of Seventh-day Adventism in America, which was in Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, so... Uh, basically, uh, Sadler married Lena Kellogg, who is the niece of John and William Kellogg, who are the two brothers who uh, basically William Kellogg was the one who actually went and founded the Kellogg cereal company and invented uh, the breakfast cereal that would revolutionize uh, the entire landscape of American breakfast forever, uh, which was cornflakes. Um, and, and his brother, John, was a physician, um, a very famous physician who set up a very prominent, um, what he actually called, he coined this term, a sanitarium. And the place that he founded was the, it was called the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And this became one of the most popular luxury health resorts in the entire country. He also opened one later in Miami, and that was also very popular and popular with like some very, very big, powerful people. Um, the list of his patients is like a who's who of Gilded Age and early 20th century elites. Um, he basically uh, he treated former president uh, William Howard Taft. He treated members of the Rockefeller family. Um, he treated, uh, let me see, Thomas Edison at one point. Um, and another one of his patients was, uh, I believe it was uh, C.W. Post, who would go on to become famous as another serial tycoon. And he actually got the recipe for uh, basically a cornflakes recipe from, I guess, some kind of alternative cooking classes that were held at the sanitarium where the Kellogg's both as devout uh, Seventh-day Adventists were very interested in making alternative healthy foods. This is kind of a really early manifestation of what would become the massive health food industry in like the mid 20th century. Um, but this is very influenced by their religious doctrines and their religious beliefs. And I guess they came up with a bunch of proprietary recipes for uh, various foods that they believed based on their medical understanding at the time would promote, uh, promote both physical mental and spiritual health. And one of those was this like cornflake cereal. So uh, CW Post like stole this idea from them and then went and started a company. And then when William Kellogg, uh, who worked at the sanitarium under his brother, found out about this, he got so angry that he quit the sanitarium and founded the first Kellogg cereal company to make, you know, his original uh, patented version of uh, what would become cornflakes. Um, and uh, and so a little bit about like Dr. John H. John Harvey Kellogg, um, he you know he founded this sanitarium, um, which like he coined that term um, to like evoke kind of the sanitation of the mind and body, um, in accordance with you know his sort of a uh, medical philosophies. Like I said, lots of famous people went through there, a lot of European royalty, um, and. 
he was also, uh, you know, it should be mentioned, um, an extremely enthusiastic eugenicist. Um, he founded something called the Race Betterment Society. Um, he co-founded that with Irving Fisher, who was a University of Chicago economist who's widely regarded as like the father of neoclassical economics and a hero of people like Milton Friedman, um, and also a biologist named Charles Davenport, who was a kind of considered maybe the biggest leader on the East Coast of the eugenics movement in the early 20th century. And he wrote he wrote such uh, progressive uh, book titles as uh, Race Crossing in Jamaica and other books that uh, ostensibly um, investigated the perils of racial crossbreeding. And, you know, these, these three guys basically, uh, they... They were very big on the eugenic scene in the early uh, 20th century, and um, and were were like close friends with uh, Ellen White, who is the uh, they would regard her as a prophetess um, in the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Uh, she was a herself was a veteran of the sort of Millerite revivals in 1840s upstate New York, where uh, I believe there was a farmer named Miller who predicted that. I think on a very specific date in 1945 that Jesus was going to come uh, and, you know, judgment day was going to happen and uh, sort of attracted this Christian apocalyptic cult in that, in the areas of upstate New York. And then of course uh, that didn't happen. And he, Miller himself kind of retired from prophecy. And uh, you know, I, I think we've actually talked about that book, like when prophecy fails yeah yeah and yeah. that's that's explicitly about the millerite yeah movement yeah. um and and how and some people Zevi is also the, the what's Sabati, that the, and Sabati Zevi, the sort of jewish messianic character who ended up converting to islam oh okay uh, is also in one prophecy fails yeah interesting yeah so uh, so in a way i mean the the main thesis of one prophecy fails is basically that when a specific prophecy is announced and becomes like the central locus point of an entire group and then the prophecy doesn't happen there's often a psychological tendency for the group to kind of double down harder right yes yeah and so that is in a way basically one of the followers even though miller himself kind of got out of the business of predicting the end of the world one of his young followers was uh ellen g white who then went on with some of her fellow millerite you know former millerite devotees to form the seventh day adventist church um and then i think uh i don't know if they quickly moved like you know like many people like the mormons and other groups i think they uh they moved out west to find a community where they could kind of build up their ideal version of uh you know their interpretation of christian doctrine um and that ended up being battle creek michigan so battle creek michigan you know is uh very very actually yes it, it was founded in 1863 in Battle Creek, Michigan, and uh, that became sort of the headquarters for the Adventists, and that is where um, the Kelloggs uh, ended up moving. I think the maybe the parents of John and William Kellogg uh, were, they were either themselves raised in, I think actually they converted, and then they moved to uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, and they became very close with Ellen White. So the Kelloggs were like a kind of a high priestly cast family in this uh, this small but growing religion, and um, and 
I guess uh, it was, I think it might have been Ellen G. White who encouraged young John Kellogg to, uh, because it, it bears mentioning that uh, because they also believed that in kind of the imminence of Judgment Day, that they didn't believe in traditional schooling because they thought that it would basically just brainwash children to into like worldly, wicked ways of thinking. And you're not going to need that anyways because we're all about to, you know, face judgment and go to heaven. Um, but they kind of made an exception for John Kellogg. And I think Ellen White encouraged him to go get a medical degree and um, and start practicing medicine in Battle Creek in um, in ways that were in line with some of the principles that the Adventists had sort of come up. So like, for example, they followed, um, they followed kosher laws, unlike most Christians. Um, I believe certain strain, there, there are kind of fluctuating strains of uh, vegetarianism. Um, and that's where a lot of this alternative food and alternative health food kind of ideas like directly come out of. Um, the idea that we are deeply affected by our diets and that our diets have um, not just the ability to influence, uh, you know, our physical health, and, but even our mental health and even our spiritual health. So, you know, certain foods can kind of encourage or potentiate wickedness and other foods can suppress wicked urges to uh, basically, you know, aid the believer in staying on the holy path. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty old idea that uh, your diet can have a spiritual significance. And I mean, I think it's definitely true, especially about your sort of mental, I mean, the mind and the body are connected. So uh, definitely your food can affect your or your diet. The food that you eat can affect your mentality for sure. Um, I don't know if you know, cornflakes will actually help you to not masturbate well, let, or whatever. Hold on, but, hold on. Yeah. Let, let, let's just like, let's set this up because this is going to be one of like the hottest little, uh, little things that we found in this whole, uh, I mean, it's, it's right there in their Wikipedia articles. It's not exactly hidden, but it is kind of a staggering thing that I feel, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised that I've never heard this before, especially in the discourse nowadays about, you know, the whole kind of online culture of uh, being, you know, about soy boys and, you know, xenoestrogens, certainly a big mm. bugaboo of Alex Jones over the years. Like, they're right. putting xenoestrogens in the milk, folks. Yeah. You know, like, the, like they're making your, your kids into little, you know, transsexuals. Uh, like, you know, the, yeah. that's, especially with GMOs, like, that has taken on a kind of new significance in the culture. And I honestly, I mean, I'm open to being suspicious of GMOs because, I mean, these are multinational conglomerates and all these things. And, you know, they already push so much unhealthy food on us that anyways, but, uh, but, you know, the, the creation of cornflakes was not just to create a vegetarian breakfast option, but, um, but quite literally it was developed by William and John Kellogg at the Battle Creek Sanitarium as an anaphrodisiac food. They were trying to develop what they called anaphrodisiac. I mean, I guess that's an actual medical term. It's basically the opposite of an aphrodisiac. Instead of uh, heightening sexual arousal and urges, it suppresses them. And they essentially invented cornflakes consciously as a food that would do exactly that, like suppress the wicked libidinous urges of the masses. And, um, 
and so you know that's why they were like teaching um they were teaching these food classes for various kind of recipes uh to patients at the sanitarium and eventually why they went out and created a company which became like the global behemoth of you know kellogg breakfast cereals and it was all based on you know before this like you know breakfast cereal i think it still is kind of it, it's not exactly a universal phenomenon like i think if you go to countries in europe or you go to asia or africa or any other part of the world besides you know north america um you're not going to see people eating like breakfast cereal regularly for breakfast they eat all kinds of things whether it's pastries or meat or cheeses uh and you know the different kinds of breads you're not going to see uh you know everybody whipping out the cheerios but like so this is a very specifically american dietary phenomenon that has you know i mean it's hard to overstate like the significance of breakfast cereal as like the quintessential yeah. American breakfast food. And it was basically designed by a bunch of Seventh-day Adventists to repress the libidos of, of like people um, so that they wouldn't masturbate or have, you know, unholy sex. Uh, uh, John H. Kellogg was also extremely anti-masturbation to the point where he, uh, he claimed, I have some quotes here. Uh, I'll look above them in a second, but I, he believed that, you know, it was so sinister that we can say that it is literally, true that one can die by one's own hand through the wickedness of masturbation which is uh so that was another you know um uh, motivation of him to uh to you know try to come up with an alternative that would maybe dampen the libidos um of you know of people yeah i mean i would say it's like probably not good to like chronically masturbate like probably like a better there's like better uses of one's time and it can lead especially you know it can lead to bad things when combined with like you know a lot of the type of like porn material that's out there 100 100 percent. not, yeah, not saying like, there's not a grain of truth there but of course like you know yeah his uh criticism of masturbation is very much of the like you know you'll die variety or you're know, like uh that like you'll go blind or insane or something Th that is uh, what he which, said he said if we yeah. were able to uh i'm paraphrasing but he said like if we're able to eradicate the evil of master of odinism and masturbation in our society that he predicted that within you know maybe 10 or 20 years that the sanatorium's and mental hospitals would be, you know, emptied of idiots and fools and morons uh, who had surely driven themselves to madness through masturbation. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he, I mean, he had like very kind of ambitious ideas about, uh, yeah, kind of um, eradicating the social evil. And um, it's interesting to know that like William Sadler, who ended up being sort of his like, nephew by marriage um didn't have as negative of a view of masturbation and kind of he actually advanced maybe in like the 1910s kind of his personal theory was that it was like the the sort of social taboos and the like neuroticism surrounding the act of masturbation that would kind of drive people into like a psychotic loop where mm. they would be like thinking how bad of a sinner they are, but then they do it more and then they think they're, you know, evil. And, um, which I think is, you know, probably at least a little bit closer to the truth. Um, or, you know, it's at least another aspect of it that I think John Kellogg was not, um, particularly apt to entertain. Um, 
but uh but yeah so that i mean the, those were some of the beliefs of the kelloggs and um and they they continued to you know once they started their sort of serial empire they continued to be very closely involved in the seventh day adventist church um and it was uh at some point around the turn of the century uh a young doctor named dr william sadler uh moved to work at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, and he met uh, one of the Kellogg's nieces, Lena Kellogg, and they basically got married. And then Dr. William Sadler, uh, he worked under John Kellogg for a while at the sanitarium and was described as like Kellogg was his mentor. And then he went to work as a, uh, quote, health food salesman for William Kellogg's cereal company in Chicago, I believe. And then uh, eventually uh, he would leave the uh, sanitarium. And I think he and Lena um, moved to Chicago. And, um, and, and that's also, though, the, the critical kind of turning point here is uh, around 19, between like 1903. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I should mention uh, really quickly that William Sadler and Lena were sent out to a medical college in San Francisco in, I believe, 1903. And I, f I can't find the, the notes of the name of it right now, but that college was eventually absorbed into Stanford Medical School, which is uh, just a little interesting. Um, but but anyways, they um, they there became a conflict in like the 1900s between um, John and John Kellogg specifically and uh, Ellen G. White, the leader of the Adventist Church, because she had basically uh, she was a person that the Adventists all believed had received prophetic visions and messages from. Mm -hmm. God, presumably, right? Um, but then there was some controversy in the 1900s where it came out that in a lot of her books, she had basically committed a lot of plagiarism and like lifted entire ideas from other spiritualist authors or other Christian authors and passed off other people's observations kind of like as hers alone, even though other people had written about these things prior. And uh, it, this started like a dispute between John Kellogg and uh, and Ellen G. White, and it eventually blew up into like a very acrimonious thing where he was kind of, kind of almost like Michael Aquino getting mad at Anton LaVey, like selling ranks in the temple, you know, in the Church of Satan. Um, he kind of thought this was like a betrayal of, you know, this person that he had like spent his life kind of working for and thought that her dodgy answers to the charges of plagiarism were like not sufficient and she kind of like weaseled her way out of it a little bit and like added a kind of vague you know forward to her books that said like oh some of these other people also had like independently had these ideas but like i wasn't aware of that and kind of said like what are you doing like you know this is kind of bullshit and eventually like a, a real beef started and um and ellen white like kicked the Kellogg's out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, I think in 1906 or 1907. And of course the Sadlers who were, you know, Sadler was married into the Kellogg family at this point, um, kind of went with them and also left the Adventist church. Um, and then um, when he was in Chicago, he ended up becoming very close with his brother-in-law, Wilfred Kellogg, um, who was the brother of his wife, Lena. Um, 
And um, and here's where it gets a little bizarre, is that uh, Wilfred Kellogg's wife was also a Kellogg. Um, and basically, they were half first cousins, and they had to go to weird synchronicity to the present. They actually had to drive up to Kenosha, Wisconsin, to get mm-hmm. married because at the time, Wisconsin still allowed marriage between first cousins. And um, and so basically, uh, yeah, so I'm sorry. I think I misspoke. Lena Kellogg's sister married Wilfred Kellogg. So Wilfred and Lena were not brothers. They were cousins. So, but like, uh, they're all in the same family. And uh, they, I guess, got the blessing of the older Kelloggs uh, to, to marry, but some of them advised them to not have children. They did have a child eventually who was born completely deaf and died at a relatively young age. So that's a bummer and probably why you shouldn't marry your first cousins. Um, but they all ended up living in the same building together and it was in 1911, you know, just a few years after all the Kellogg's and Sadler were kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, that Sadler started uh, recording um, the, the, the somnambular, uh, you know, channeled words uh, or prophecies or whatever, or messages that were spoken by a, by a patient that had always has always remained publicly anonymous, but some other people have dug into you know who it might have been, and and most historians seem to believe that Wilfred Kellogg was this patient. So the entire prophecy of the Rancho book ostensibly comes from one of the Kelloggs. Yeah, Emma Christensen, who was really involved in the uh, Urantia Foundation. Yeah. eventually kind of indicated that Wilfred Kellogg was the sleeping subject. So that's what that's based on. Um, but yeah, it's unclear. Like maybe some of it was just directly written by William Sadler. It's, you know, uh, who knows? And, or, you know, maybe some of it was written by William Sadler. Maybe some of it was channeled, by, or maybe some of it was made up by Wilfred Kellogg. Maybe some of it came from ETs uh, from, you know, it's hard to say, uh, but Mm-hmm. That's definitely what people have have indicated was that uh, the sleeping that's the main suspect for who the sleeping subject was is, is Wilfred Kellogg. Yeah, who, uh, yeah. He I think definitely had, um, you know, he had had some sort of uh, medical I mean issues uh, that people were aware of outside of his role being the the sleeping sub be, outside of the speculation around him being the sleeping subject. It was known that he you know had had struggled with sort of. Uh, you know, uh, disorders uh, of that kind, uh, sleep disorders or, or strange sort of episodes. Um, so that's part of the reason why that suspicion is is validated by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and there was actually the, another reason was there was a uh, there's a, a fellow named Sherman who wrote a kind of um, he wrote a kind of Roman Aklef, uh novel in, I think, the 1910s. And he changed oh, yeah. a lot of names, and he basically refers to something called the New Revelation book. Um, William Sadler is in it as a character who's called Dr. Henry P. Norton. Uh, Wilfred and his wife are Alfred and Lucy Buxton. Um, and eight pages in it are devoted to a report within quotation marks of what Sadler told Sherman about the UB's mysterious origin. 
Um, and yeah, that's a uh, Harold Sherman. Yeah, Harold Sherman. Prior to getting into the Urantia stuff, was like a sci-fi writer. Actually, uh, his book, like The Green Man, was something that really helped popularize the idea of aliens as being green. A little factoid about him. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Well, you, you see the also the bleed over. Yeah, the green race. There. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. The green race yeah. and the and the, like the blue like the you blue know, men, I, yes, yeah, blue yeah. men, and uh, and you do see that kind of bleed over of people that were really into early sci-fi, and then you know things like yeah. Ron Hubbard and Scientology later on. I mean, it's, it's interesting kind of a natural... how the like these prominent figures, like all that. Well, I mean, at least like the Kellogg family, you know, uh, and even Sadler is kind of like eminent psychologist. You know, you definitely could see like that that all this was about like helping the world and all this directed towards like helping the world. It's so weird that all that energy like ends up being like, okay, well let's sort out like people's, I guess there were some other things like uh, the way people think about Christianity, like how, whether religion should be more focused on morality or like a, if it's, it should be uh, more aligned with scientific uh, facts or things like that. But it's interesting how so much of it gets directed towards like, well, let's sort out like the races or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like let's figure out what the racial problems are. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and I mean, it really was, you know, like a, appropriately called a pseudoscience because these people sort of thought they were being scientific at the time. Yeah, for sure. It definitely was like what, yeah, they thought was scientific. It was much more mainstream. Um, yeah, even even then, uh, even in the 50s, like definitely uh, more so earlier on in the 20th century and especially in the late 19th century. But even at the time, these kind of ideas were taken more seriously. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and so, you know, this this group that, started assembling to sort of sort through and discuss these channeled messages was called the forum. And it was like a group of Chicagoans who met every Sunday to discuss the Urantia papers while their content was being channeled at night by the sleeping Wilfred. Um, and, you know, and, and Harold Sherman was one of these people who was sort of invited to come check this out. And I guess he and his wife, you know, were kind of intrigued by it at first. You know, he was really into like paranormal stuff and ESP and kind of things like that. Um, and I guess he was admired for his psychic abilities at the time. So he was kind of in the mix of a lot of this like paranormal spiritualist kind of stuff. But then he started to get like suspicious of that and eventually um, a, a bit of... Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess also his uh, his ostensible um, communication with the dead kind of pissed off Sadler, who still had a lot of Adventist ideas about that. And eventually they just like had a falling out and they were like rudely expelled from the forum. And then he wrote this book, uh, How to Know What to Believe, um, that was actually published in 1976, so like much later. But he was the one person that kind of like exposed maybe the sort of you know, the, the real characters and machinations going on in the sort of 30-year collection and compilation of these Urantia papers. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, like, they, yeah, for a long time, they didn't... Um, you know, I mean, this is this is also contemporaneous with their eugenics activism in public, you know, uh, Sadler. Um 
And uh, I believe what John Kellogg died in 1943. Uh, interestingly, the Miami version of the Battle Creek Sanitarium he set up was uh, taken over by the U.S. Army when he died in 1943. That might have just been a World War II thing, but considering like all of the super famous people that went through there, um, I don't know, kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And and what did uh did, I forget? Did he die? Did Sadler die in the sixties? Yeah, he died in nineteen sixty nine. And uh, and I guess wow, like, there he was studied a... psychiatry for a year under Sigmund Freud. Oh, he did. That's right. He went to uh, Vienna for a little while, and he studied under Sigmund Freud. So just like another person, uh, like Edward Bernays, who is Sigmund Freud's nephew, who came and like invented you know American public relations and worked for the CIA. Um, you know, these people that kind of imbibed Freud's theories back then and then came back and tried to kind of use them to quote, like make the world a better place. Uh, you know, there's at least yeah. there's and a it's handful interesting of that. Well, according to Wikipedia, which is where we were just looking to determine his date of death. Um, that's like, you know, 1910 when he went to Europe to study under him. So that would have been right around when he first was brought in to help this, this patient, uh, the sleeping subject who probably was Wilfred Kellogg, uh, according to most people. Exactly. Um, yeah. Which it was very kind of interesting. And I like, wonder what yeah, kind of connection there was there. Well, I mean, yeah, like in terms of like the interpretation of dreams and all that stuff, it's, uh, yeah. And like they had to uh, process these things and interpret them. Like it's interesting to think about like Freud as, as an influence. Um, but yeah. Um, one of the, uh, it, yeah, in terms of the, the influence of this book, someone who I wanted to mention um, as like a, a big, uh, like a, a big uh, figure in sort of the uh, future dissemination of uh, the Urantia book is uh, the guy who wrote the opera uh, Licht or just Light. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, what was his name? It's, uh, a German composer, such a very popular. His name is uh, Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Um, yeah, yeah, Stockhausen. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow, yeah, you've heard of him. So, yeah, um, he wrote like this huge, uh, sprawling opera. It was actually designed to be cyclical and just go forever. It's like, or endlessly and just continue uh, to play. Like, and, but uh, it's, you know, 29 hours of music or something, like something absurd like that yeah 29 hours of music um and wow. he was really into uh the arantia book i guess uh this was composed like uh between 1977 and 2003 mm -hmm. um so it's pretty recent but while i was researching arantia for uh this podcast i came across like some amazing uh quotes by him sort of relative to Licks that I think put this uh, in some of the con uh, interesting context that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so he was actually asked about uh, Licht um, on, in a press conference in Hamburg, Germany on September 16th, 2001. And uh, journalists asked him, you know, are the characters in this opera, you know, which is very much like the space opera of the Urantia book, uh, they asked him, you know, are these just some figures from a common cultural history? Are they mythological or are they real beings? Are they material appearances? And he said, uh, I pray daily to Michael, but not to Lucifer. I have renounced him, but he is very much present, like in New York recently. 
Um, so the journalist followed up and asked, you know, well, how are these events in 9-11 have affected you? Like, you know, what, what do you think about that? And he said, well, what happened there is, of course, now all of you must adjust your brains. The big thought adjustment. Uh, the biggest <laughs> work of art there has ever, the, you know, what happened there is, of course, now all of you must adjust your brains. The biggest work of art there has ever been. So uh, the fact so that spirits, he, wow. yeah, nine eleven. The fact that spirits achieve with one act something which we in music could never dream of. That people practice ten years madly, fanatically for a concert and then die, and that is the greatest work of art that exists for the whole cosmos. Just imagine what happened there. There are people who are so concentrated on the single performance, and then five thousand people are driven to resurrection in one moment. I couldn't do that. Compared to that, we are nothing as composers. It is a crime, you know, of course, because people did not agree to it. They did not come to the quote-unquote concert. That is obvious. And nobody had told them you could be killed in the process. Oh, my um, God. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, is... then he yeah, he then tried to explain himself and say, uh, at the press conference in Hamburg, I was asked if Michael, Eve, and Lucifer were historical figures of the past, and I answered that they exist now. For example, Lucifer in New York. In my work, I have defined Lucifer as the cosmic spirit of rebellion, of anarchy. He uses his high degree of intelligence to destroy creation. He does not know love. Any further questions about the events in America, I said that such a plan appeared to be Lucifer's greatest work of art. Of course, I use the designated work of art to mean the work of destruction personified in Lucifer. In the context of my other comments, this was unequivocal. So, yeah. Wow, uh, so he's kind of endorsing the 9-11 as mass ritual theory. Uh, definitely he is. But as also explicitly. operatic performance art? Yes, um, which, you know, is a, and uh, to see that in the context of the sort of Urantia cosmology of these beings, like Lucifer, Michael, uh, and uh, referencing that in that context is interesting uh, to consider. Um, and that's just can, one example of the influence of this book and kind of these, these uh, new age beliefs and or these sort of uh, interpretive frameworks that proliferate now. Um, yeah, it would be cool to, uh, yeah, if, uh, I actually haven't listened to it, but um, it would be cool to listen to some of his, uh, his opera. Um, Maybe I'll some. use some of it in, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. the interlude. Yeah, yeah, might be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it might be good to find some, yeah. So you get, and yeah, and I was just looking, like, to go back to kind of, like, famous people that most of us would recognize that were, like, really into it. You had mentioned in the beginning, like, Jerry Garcia. Um, yeah. Yeah, apparently, I see this in the L.A. Times article, actually written by Paul Krasner, who used to publish May Brussel, weirdly, um, kind of a counterculture guy. But he, uh, this article from 95 starts out, uh, even though Bill Clinton occasionally wears a Jerry Garcia designer necktie, 
interesting. Uh, Garcia weird. himself never wore a tie. Uh, of course, he loves the dead. But he did have a drawer filled with blank T-shirts along with a copy of the Urantia book. He once told me that anyone who had read that 2097-page sci-fi spiritual co- tome from cover to cover, which he had done, would receive a mysterious visit from three elderly women. They never arrived at his door. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's um, like that. Um uh, yeah, I don't know what his kind of deal with the Eurasia book was, but uh, but like you said, uh, um, there's uh, yeah, like Jimi Hendrix, Willie Nelson was kind of into it, uh, Jackie Gleason, Norman Lear, and I, I don't find this uh, super surprising, but Deepak Chopra and Marion Williamson as well. Wow, oh, that makes perfect sense. It well, does, I mean, it does. it's in a way like very appealing because. It's, again, like, now we can look back at it and we can see, like, how these attempts to, like, update or like, modernize or, like, fix, you know, these problems in, uh, you know, the the traditional kind of religious cosmologies, like, they also, like, fall short and now seem, like, even more horrifically dated than, like, what people, like, would encounter in the New Testament or the Old Testament or, any or you know, the, the sort of standard scriptures. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, uh, it's this impulse to have something that is more palatable or more, uh, you know, uh, adaptive to our, our, conce- like, I just, the way that everything is sort of, uh, stratified through this vast hierarchy is what I think is the real, and I mean, this has some precedent, you know, there's ideas of like angelic choirs and hierarchies of spirit beings that have been like part of uh, different religious traditions, like going back for a long time, but the incredible like vastness of it and the hyper articulation of it, it's so like attenuated that it becomes like very, it becomes accessible in a way where it's like this, uh, like Lord of the Rings type or like, I don't know, uh, Star Trekky mythology that uh, and with kind of almost a very watered down in some ways, like in some ways it's very kind of watered down type of religious practice. Uh, but of course, you know, yeah. at the time, like what was sort of vogue and seen as liberal, like being uh, like an open eugenicist, like now is mm-hmm. like repugnant to us. But um, yeah, like, uh, it, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you can see that in Marion Williamson's earlier involvement years ago with the Course in Miracles, which uh, I think yeah. was supposed to be a, a sort well, of that channel. was the main thing of her whole career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was what put her on the map. Was like the this supposedly channeled document from Jesus, right? Yeah. And I don't know, maybe we should do a whole Marianne episode at one point and like, just like, yeah. she's sort of like a Forrest Gump of like new agey, like weirdness, uh, like positive, yeah. kind of the light, you know, in contrast to like an Aquino or LaVey, she's like very much on the positive side of all this like murky woo-woo stuff. And, um, but yeah, she's but, like a love and light uh, as opposed to like darkness and, and hate or crush the weak. But yeah, but again, like there's... Uh, like, yeah, it's interesting how these, like, extremes don't, like, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, Lucifer is the bright morning star, you know, there's, mm-hmm. like, a similar, you know, even in the Urantia book, you see, like, once Caligastia and, like, Lucifer and Satan and Dalagastia, all these people were, like, the most illustrious, you know, illust- uh, illustrious, like, uh, accomplished members of this, you know, the greatest servants of, like, the ultimate father or whatever, uh, but they... Uh, you know, at one time, Caligastia was like Michael. So there's, you know, there's this uh, 
this parallel. It's uh, kind of a, a yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's not a super ne- except for I mean, Caligastia is kind of like demonized as the you know nefarious like supervillain, kind of like a Lord Zenu. But uh, but it yeah. seems a little more ambiguous with. But Lucifer. like Zenu, if I'm correct in remembering Zenu's role and everything, uh, he was at one time. I mean, much like the sort of Miltonian Satan, and you know, even the uh, Satan in, in like traditional scriptures. You know, at one time he was like there's a there's a hadith that you know uh, S- Satan was once like so revealed that angels like if he dropped his test bit like you know his prayer beads while he was praying. Uh, the angels would come and like pick it up for him because like that's how like honored he was and like how close to God he was. So uh, yeah, it's a uh, like a uh, it's. I mean, I think one thing that you can say about uh, the Urantia book is that it's very careful to uh, discuss like the the nature of you know or, or make this idea of evil kind of comprehensible in a way where uh, the you know, seduction of Eve and how this became uh, like an appealing idea to her. Uh, it's a very like kind of modern idea of how these things work, how this type of seduction, where I'm like, uh, when it's hard to kind of comprehend, like, oh, how could you listen to that snake? You know, things like that. Like, how could you like do that? After God said, like, what, are you kidding me? Um, you know, trying uh-huh. to make these things uh, uh, understandable too. Uh, it, it creates a kind of novelistic like cushion for yeah, contextualizing exactly. it what's is, happening. It's interesting to think of it as a cushion. I think it's an interesting way to think about it because it does have like it, on one hand, like the I feel like the theology of it. Well, it's too, like because the ontology or like the whole uh, sort of cosmology, like especially if you read the chapters on like the nature of God and stuff, that is like all so dense, and he has so many like. Uh, components is like trinities upon trinities and like there's supremacy and absoluteness and like you know things like that it's like uh it's comparable but more nonsensical and like more sort of sophistical ironically despite like the book's constant uh uh sort of opposition to sophistry um the you know it's it's much more sophistical than uh previous sort of uh, theological or, or uh, philosophical discussions of of the the nature of God and its complexity, like in, in other illustrations, like uh, Ibn Arabi or something like that. But um, you know that stuff is like very complex, and of course the cosmology of the uh, the sort of universe and like all the different terms and all the different figures and the whole hierarchy that's very complicated. But the like actual principles and like the lived like dimension of it is like kind of like cornflakes you know it's like very like shallow in some ways just like we need to make the world better like here's some eugenics like (laughs) you know why can't everyone just like believe in like trade unions instead of this or you know like uh it's and it's all just it all just becomes very a lot of idealism mixed with um also a blind spot i mean i thought it was interesting in the arancha book where they completely juxtapose industrialism and like nationalist militarism and i like i kind of see what they're going for there like kind of maybe the transnational uh nature of capitalism as it evolves uh but like the idea that industrial tycoons have like nothing to do with the starting of wars i mean maybe in the pre world war 1 era that was something that you know might seem obvious uh that or it might not seem obvious that there's like a convergence there but you know by the 1950s we've been through world war one and world war two it, it seems a little bit 
strange to uh yeah to sort of like put a hard and and given the fact that this is from like a serial dynasty <laughs> like that is something like that occur- incredibly yeah. wealthy something that occurs to me is that like you know like the the quran is like 1400 years old at this point and there's nothing in the quran that like is against like brazenly contradicts what we know of science but like in this book which is all about how like you know religion needs to be brought into harmony with true science and true reality there's all these things like you know the universe is this many years old exactly and it's just Uh like a wrong number or something that like now is out of date and so it's like the like that what's desired actually ends up having like the you know the 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 upgrade or the up the uplift or whatever is uh actually has the opposite effect and it becomes like incredibly shallow and and uh almost like uh, intolerably dated like there's uh you know there's a clear uh if you, you know it's clear there's like there's there's mm-hmm. no comparison between these two things like these things are just the test of time like these traditions and uh these type of and you know these type of new age type channelings and, and, well, and I, I, yeah i think it's but, really useful to focus on the aspect of these quote rev- revelations and these beliefs and how they ultimately found their kind of highest cultural expression in kind of an early form of what you might call like today's like conscious capitalism you know yeah. like the kind of whole foods model of like we're making the world a better place yeah, like the Melchizedek son of like the tenth council of Uversa, like came down to tell you that like NATO is like the best way to achieve like <laughs> racial harmony. You know, like it's just like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, yeah, no, it, it ends yeah. up being a feeling a little bit. You end up feeling like Zena Levay when you get to become a high priestess of Set, and then you realize that like Michael Aquino never talked to Set, and like yeah, nothing really. It's just like a weird front for like his strange intelligence. Intelligence. The Temple of Set is very similar, where like I. It's so like unbearably like fraudulent and like just it's fraud like whereas with like a true like religious text that gets at some truth like I would say I would say you know uh, certain things like I would say I would include the Old Testament New Testament and I would include the obviously I would include the Quran in this yeah I like would they too. like their truth is like very like arresting to you like that there's some like truth in this like you know some people feel differently about which ones are true but in my opinion like you know the truth of the Quran like really like grips you whereas like it was the book of coming forth by night or like the Urantia book. And it, you know, it's interesting though, because some people do have different experiences where they read the Urantia book and they're like, this really like, this is it. Like, I just believe this like so much, uh, which is, you know, something that I don't quite understand because to me, it's like the opposite where these things just like are duds. But yeah. yeah, no, It's like, it all kind of falls flat. It reads like, it's like anytime you try to go and read L Ron Hubbard science fiction, you know, not even like sort of his like quote religious documents, but you try to read stuff, it's like not good. It's just like wacky. It feels like somebody's just making this shit up and they're not doing it in a way that is kind of compelling or feels like it's tied to some kind of deep truth or um, a kind of universal shared experience yeah. and things like that. It's kind of like they're just like popping off these like dazzling little i don't know like it it, it, you're right it it falls flat it's weird like jerry it's weird but probably not weird that these like very famous counterculture hippie figures would be so into the urantia book because like 
I mean, like, how psyoped must have Jerry Garcia been, like, his whole fucking life? Like, you know, hanging around with these, like, MK Ultra scientists, like, dropping acid constantly and being around these weird, like, occulty figures in San Francisco. Um, and I don't know. Even though yeah. he feels like the least sinister person in The Grateful Dead um, compared to, like, Bob Weir, like, goes to Bohemian <laughs> Grove and was like a, a like a adopted uh, interestingly adopted child of like rich San Francisco people um but like it does one, make you kind of wonder um kind of like what is the draw me, here well one thing that occurs to me is that like these sort of abrahamic like religious texts that i feel like the i mean and it is very much in the urantia book is very much in dialogue with them where it's mm-hmm. uh, modulation really of christianity talks at great length about jesus talks about christianity as the mightiest religion or the you know the truest of of the religions and things like that um so i but i do think that those religions, whether it's, you know, or the, in those scriptures, whether it's the New Testament, whether it's the Quran, et cetera, like those are like not like those aren't necessarily like, feel good books, you know, like the Quran, which is the one I know best is one that like really grabs you and it's like, listen, like, you know, you better like get this, like yeah, or else like, you know, like this is like this is real. Yeah, like, uh, but all the knows and you know not. Yeah, like, like it's um, constantly telling you, like, oh, you think you're, oh, you think you got it figured out, huh? Um, and yeah, you know, exactly. The Bible or, does that, that as well. Um, yeah, Jesus, yeah. you know, kind of saying, like, you know, oh, like, master, like, what should I do to, like, you know, be a good person? And, you know, um, and saying, like, you know, why do you think I'm good? God's the only one that's good. Like, just kind of dropping these sort of koans on you and, you know, challenging, yeah, well, not giving you the easy way out. Exactly. Whereas I think that that is like kind of what these offer. Like it's a religion kind of of the the self in a way. Like and it's interesting because in in the Urantia book, you know, Satan is presented like as this libertarian sort of uh, self, you know, independent kind of yeah. figure. It's interesting uh, to think about uh, him and like where that kind of fits in. But at the same time, uh, there's this idea of that human beings maybe can achieve godhood in some way or and like the actual demands upon a person that the Gerantia book makes are not very significant. They're mostly just like, oh, like I am like, you know, I have special knowledge or something or uh, it's just, you know, just uh, doesn't make any demands of you it doesn't require anything um, yeah like you. like believe in your rancha and eat cornflakes and <laughs> i don't yeah, it exactly. seems like a lot like a lot of modern new agey stuff it's it's like, very it, based on like lifestyleism yeah exactly like oh isn't it nice to believe this you know like whether mm. the like aspect of whether it's true like it's ironic because it talks about like how uh people have uh, disassociated like god from like the truth of science but I feel like this kind of dissociates like something being true, like from something being like kind of appealing to a certain sensibility, some, something like conforming to what seems like r- a realistic way to like order the cosmos to like mm-hmm. a, an audience that's like uh, conditioned by like sci-fi and that type of stuff, you know, or which I think has a lot, like, uh, kind of has a lot in common. If you had to point to one other sort of political, social, mystical phenomenon in the early 20th century that tried to like actualize that in a big way, I mean, you'd probably have to say Nazi Germany. 
would be the one basically offering this sort of convenient cosmology of the world and this whole mythology behind it that was kind of being like made up on the fly in a lot of ways and but was kind of unlike you know Urantia where it was being ratified by you know the channelings of like one mysterious person it was almost like being channeled through the person of Hitler who is the head of the government and then like delegated to the various government agencies and the SS and all these other like socio-political formations that were kind of building like and almost in like a mind war way, like we are going to build this reality if it does not already exist. We are going to yeah. create it and then it will be reality. And then we're just going to pretend that it is reality until we get to that point. And, you know, they, it was like terrifyingly, um, they got pretty far with it. And, you know, their their idea of, you know, their fascination with eugenics, you know, coinciding with the Urantia people, um, you know, their, their obsession... Um, uh, I think they went on. All these people went on the uh, the the Chautauqua, uh, the Chautauqua circuit. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? No. That was like a speaking circuit um, where prominent, you know, experts and individuals, almost like a TED talk. Honestly, it sounds a lot like TED talks um, in the early 20th century and late 19th centuries, um, where these people kind of go on like whistle stop tours around the country, often to rural areas. And there would be teachers, musicians, intellectuals, preachers, uh, specialists. Um, former President Theodore Roosevelt was quoted as saying that Chautauqua is the, quote, most American thing in America. And um, both uh, John H. Kellogg and William Sadler and Lena Sadler were all, like, regular top speakers um, uh, throughout the early 20th century and were, like, very popular on the circuit. And uh, and I think that's kind of... It's interesting thing about, like, TED Talks because TED Talks have this almost culty, positive, new-agey feel to them. Yeah. You know, it's always like, let me tell you a story. Yeah, and they're using like neurolinguistic programming, like style and their yeah, language. Yeah, let me blow your mind with like one fact that's going to offer like a paradigm to like you know just reinvent like the whole way that you see the world and like and then you'll walk away thinking like oh wow like wow. I like I really, yeah it's I really very learned much something like, self congratulatory yes like yeah. wow like aren't I great for like knowing this little factoid like that I'm now not going to actually do anything to act upon. Yeah, um, yeah, it's like it's kind of like the politics of awareness. Like now you've been made aware of something. And therefore, your consciousness has been transformed. And just by kind of exposing people to a new idea, it, it, they're going to go out in the world and then change it to in a sort of natural, inexorable, you know, path of improvement. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I really... think that even the revelators of the Urantia book were like called the angels of progress or whatever. And that like, you know, just by getting this out there, like it's going to be, you know, this huge thing uh what you're saying about uh nazi germany and like of course this is like one of the major themes of subliminal jihad is like the influence of esotericism on nazis at least so far it's a huge uh, theme probably will continue to be Mm -hmm. but uh the you know uh it reminded me of uh a quote uh from from mein kampf i think uh where hitler was kind of talking about how uh he says creation is not yet at an end Man has clearly arrived at a turning point. A new variety of man is beginning to separate out. The two types will rapidly diverge from one another. One will sink to a subhuman race and the other rise far above the man of today. I might call the two varieties the God-man and the mass animal. Um, Mm. Those who see in national socialism nothing more than a political movement know scarcely anything of it. It is more even than a religion. 
it is the will to create mankind anew. So wow. I mean that that is just a, yeah, like an edgier go. version of the things in Urantia, basically. Yeah, and all the themes of many like esoteric movements, uh, and all like of course it's a little society that Hitler was heavily influenced by in the development of, of national socialism in general. But maybe that's for another day to get. Into yeah, the, yeah, the little... and I mean, and if you yeah, if you read, uh, I'm just gonna read from. Uh, we can get into this this article in a second, which is kind of a an old. Uh, blog expose about a certain tea company, but all, it, it does some quotes in here about like the six colored races thing in the Arantia book. Um, and so from paper 51, it says the earlier races are somewhat superior to the later. Uh, it's talking about red. The, the six races are red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and indigo. The earlier races are somewhat superior to the later. The red man stands far above the indigo black race, says paper 51, and each succeeding evolutionary manifestation of a distinct group of mortals represents variation at the expense of the original endowment. Furthermore, the yellow race usually enslaves the green, while the blue man, which corresponds to Caucasians, subdues the indigo, the black. Um, and on it's every weird planet, how they go back and forth between the indigo and the violet race. It seems like they drop one at random times, like because sometimes they definitely refer to the violet race, but then whatever. I think aren't like, the violet races kind of like Adam and Eve, like the kind of extraterrestrial no, visitors? No, they're good. The, the, the violet races are the Nodites who Eve uh, foolishly interbreeded with. Um, so yeah, they are definitely referred to the, as the violet people. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's like also like another quote in there is like once, uh, once the progeny of Adam and Eve mate with acceptable inhabitants of the natives, the way it's, the way it's supposed to go is that, uh, inferior stocks, this is a quote, um, inferior stocks will be eliminated and there will be one purified race, one language and one religion. So it's actually not, um, I think it's also useful to think about this as they're kind of advocating a one world government brought about by eugenics and like the consolidation of all cultures into yeah. In fact, like I think one they, culture. They openly advocate a one world government. I think that Adam like deliberately tries to. I, I might be wrong. They did but say, I'm no, they did. Sure say, we quote. We quoted that earlier. He does say he tried to create a one world government, but yeah, it was wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, even in those exact terms. So yeah, definitely they promote one world government. Yeah. Yeah, and to um, compare this article quotes, uh, you know, it, it says page seven, paper seventy in Urantia says quote biologic renovation of the racial stocks, the selective elimination of inferior human strains will tend to eradicate many mortal inequalities. And it compares that to Hitler's words in Mein Kampf, which are the demand that defective people be prevented from propagating equally defective offspring represents the most human act of mankind. Ooh, yikes. Um, and, um, and yeah, so I, I think I want to bring up now, like getting into kind of like, you know, th this was released in the fifties and then, you know, it's kind of bounced around in the culture since then. And, um, but there's, there's a few kind of spinoffs of it, of like people who were, um, deeply influenced by the rancher, but we already talked about like Jimi Hendrix and, uh, Jerry Garcia. Um, but this is an interesting article, um, called cults, conspiracies, and the twisted history of sleepy time tea. Um, and I don't know, like I always grew up, I think, uh, like with sleepy time tea like in the cupboard it's like a very iconic it's like a little like berenstein bear like little animation yeah, on the front it's like yeah, very cute bear I, sleeping yeah yeah it's like a, a blend of uh peppermint and um 
and chamomile tea that um, that was invented in 1969 by uh, a guy named Mo Siegel and some of his friends um, who were living in Colorado at the time and used to go hiking up in the Rocky Mountains in search of like new herbs to like put in tea and uh, and I guess up until then tea was pretty like homogenous in America and Britain. It was mostly like Earl Grey or like English breakfast made from Camellia sinensis. Mm-hmm. Um, but they wanted to, you know, uh, kind of add, you know, different blends of herbs and stuff and make new teas. So they, um, they basically made a Moe's 36 herb tea, which I think then was followed by sleepy time. They called their company celestial seasonings. Um, and, uh, and it, ostensibly that was named after the co-founder Lucinda Zeising's uh, flower name. I'm not sure what a flower name is, but okay. Um, but this article says there, there might be another reason they named it Celestial. Mo Siegel and John Hay, two of the founders, were avid believers in a New Age Bible called the Urantia Book, which followers call, quote, an epical revelation authored solely by celestial beings. The book touches on everything from mind control to a eugenics plot to eliminate the, quote, inferior races of our great nation. Um, and there was like a book called, uh, there was like kind of like chicken soup for the soul book in the nineties called, you've got to read this book. 55 people tell the story of the book that changed their life. And, you know, just one of these like random famous people talking about a book that changed my life. Um, yeah. one of the people interviewed him is Mo Siegel and like, he picks the Urantia book and, in that, Siegel discloses that the ideals he gathered from the Urantia book guided how he ran Celestial Seasonings from the beginning and provided a moral compass for himself and his employees. I had wanted bold. I found bold, he wrote. I wanted spiritual adventure, and I was on the ride of my life. I was searching for truth, and this book was loaded with it. Um, so he he mentions at... Um, at various points that like he would you he and John Hay would like literally quote the Arantia book in like board meetings to like make business decisions to like make sure that they were being um you know morally rooted and like centered in blah 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 and again like we're getting back into this very shady world of like conscious capitalism and these people kind yeah. of like psyoping them like mking themselves me, did you see that article recently that was like about uh some organization or some startup that is like ritual consultants for companies where they go in and they're like we're gonna make your work environment more like a religious community or a church. Like, you know, we went to Harvard Divinity School or whatever, and now we're here to, like, you know, try to make Ooh. this. Yeah, it was, well, I feel like that circulated a lot around, like, Muslim, probably Catholic Twitter, uh, because, you know, uh, obviously, like, it incurred outrage from, like, actual religious people, um, and probably, like, from people of all kinds. Like, the idea of that is just repugnant in general, I feel like, to think, like, oh, my God, like, my boss is going to try to turn, like, my office into, like, some kind of church or whatever. Like, no thanks. But the notion of that is very, like, yeah, like, uh, the idea of, like, religious principles being like coming secondary to the goal of like making a profit is yes, like really, exactly. You know, I couldn't yeah. think of anything more kind of lowercase s like shatanic than yes. that. Like that's it's, deeply wicked. Extreme, yeah, extremely so. It's, extremely and, so. And, and yeah, yeah. like uh, I, so actually it's funny that you mentioned that because I think that gets back to very conscious 
sort of things that were researched around Stanford and Silicon Valley uh, and probably MIT and other places as well in the 1960s and 70s and had a huge influence on the development of companies in Silicon Valley. Because if you've noticed, like if you've ever read about a lot of companies, whether it's Netflix or uh, Snapchat or Apple, um, I, I worked in, like in an Apple store years ago. And I remember when Steve, I was working there when Steve Jobs died and people started building shrines outside of the store with like flowers and candles and like coming yeah. to like, like it was like a Virgin Mary like a Madonna shrine or something like that. It was just like yeah. very creepy. I remember seeing a picture of he had this gigantic, like they unfurled this like three story banner of like that black and white picture where he's like holding his chin, like a Mason <laughs> and like staring at you. And it just reminded me kind of, of like, like, you know, like North Korea, honestly, I mean, not, yeah. not to, not to like bag on North Korea, but like it just aesthetically <laughs> it, in a way, like, like, people at Apple would be like surprised if you made that comparison, but it's like, mm, there it is. Like you guys, like you guys worship Steve, you know, like, like he would send mass emails out and like, you know, just his first name. Oh yeah. yeah Steve, you know? And, yeah. and he had this aura about him and he wore his little black turtleneck and, you know, he really was like kind of like a cult leader, but don't take my word for it or even your word call it because I'm looking right now at a wired article from 2014 called you should run your startup like a cult. Here's how. And it's written by none other than Peter Thiel. Oh, of course. He <laughs> yeah. wrote in his book. So, I mean, just to, like, drive home that, like, yes, this is an idea that goes around. Um, he says... Uh, no company has a culture. Every company is a culture. A startup is a team of people on a mission, and a good culture is just what this looks like on the inside. The first team that I built has become known in Silicon Valley as the PayPal Mafia because so many of my former colleagues, including Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, and David Sachs, have gone on to help each other and invest in successful tech companies. Sus. Um, but we didn't assemble a mafia by sorting through resumes and simply hiring the most talented people. I had seen the mixed results of that approach when I worked at a New York law firm. Uh, didn't he work at Sullivan and Cromwell? By I the really way? don't know. Uh, yeah, you would know better than I. Yeah, he did. Uh, he worked at Sullivan and Cromwell. It was CIA-connected fucking law firm ever um, and Nazi-connected too. Um, when I worked at a New York law firm, the relationships between lawyers I worked with were oddly thin. They spent all day together, but few of them seemed to have much to say to each other outside the office. Why work with a group of people who don't even like each other? Taking a merely professional view of the workplace in which free agents check in and out on a transactional basis is worse than cold. It's not even rational. Since time is your most valuable asset, it's odd to spend it working with people who don't envision any long-term future together. Rule one, the best startups work a lot like cults. In the most intense kind of organization, members abandon the outside world and hang out only with other members. We have a word for such organizations, cults. Cultures of total dedication look crazy from the outside, but entrepreneurs should take cultures of extreme dedication seriously. The extreme opposite of a cult is a consulting firm like Accenture. Not only does it lack a distinctive mission, but individual consultants are regularly dropping in and out of companies to which they have no long-term connection whatsoever. The best startups might be considered less, slightly less extreme kinds of cults. The biggest difference is that cults tend to be fanatically wrong about something important. People at, at a successful startup are fanatically right about something those outside it have missed. 
Rule two, giving people a chance to change the world is a lousy way to recruit employees. Recruiting is a core competency for any company. It should never be outsourced. Talented people don't need to work for you. They have plenty of options. You should ask yourself, why would someone join your company as its 20th engineer when she could go work at Google for more money and more prestige? Here are some bad answers. Your stock options will be worth more here than elsewhere. You'll get to work with the smartest people in the world. You can help solve the world's most challenging problems. Every company makes these same claims, so they won't help you stand out. You'll attract the employees you need if you can explain why your mission is compelling, not why it's important in general, but why you're doing something important that no one else is going to get done. However, even a great mission is not enough. The best recruit will also wonder, are these the kind of people I want to work with? You should be able to explain why your company is a unique match for him personally. And if you can't do that, he's probably not um, the right match. Rule three, I'll just go through this. Everyone at your startup should have just one job. So have it be a high control group. Um, internal peace is what enables a startup to survive at all. Um, the best thing I did as a manager at PayPal was make every person in the company responsible for doing just one thing. I had started doing this just to simplify the task of managing people, but then I noticed a deeper result. Defining roles reduce conflict. Eliminating competition makes it easier for everyone to build the kinds of long-term relationships that transcend uh, mere professionalism. Rule four, hire employees who are excited to wear your logo on their hoodies and and, uh, you know, that's like, that's basically kind of it, but you get the idea. Like he's kind of reminded me of the TikTok house, uh, how there's like three people dedicated just to like mindfulness or whatever. Really? Like, uh, yeah. That, uh, like a house of people that like creates t- like dedicated to creating TikTok videos. I heard about like, that. I actually didn't read the whole yeah. thing, but is that yeah. a similar thing? Uh, well, it seems like it in terms of like the roles that they have, like uh, the very clearly defined roles that like are highly narrow, like, uh, you know, mindfulness and like attitude and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It, it also reminds me of because, you know, Peter Thiel is kind of um, implying he's kind of just pulling this out of nowhere and kind of saying, oh, I noticed this when I was running the PayPal mafia. But uh, one thing that <clears throat> I think. Um, is definitely like a topic to circle back on in a later episode that like I I didn't stumble upon this, but other people have and and I find it very interesting is the uh like MIT and Stanford's like fascination with Maoism in the 50s and 60s and basically studying the organizational techniques of Maoists in like the Communist Party in China and how were they able to get so many people, especially rural, uneducated people, to sort of be down with whatever the Communist Party was doing. And they, in, you know, they, they examine things like the mass line and uh, self-crit. So, I mean, now you see stories that, like, in Netflix, they have, like, brutal self-crit sessions where, like, people stand up and you can, um, in Apple, when we worked there, we had something called fearless feedback, which is their, like, proprietary term where you could technically go to any superior manager or any colleague, and but you had to use the kind of, like, specific kind of comradely language to kind of, like, hey, do you think I can grab you for a second and do some fearless feedback? And then, like, you basically have to say yes. You can't say no. Um, As long as the person's being nice and using the language and then you go i mean you got to see it with like woke kind of uh interpersonal like 
you know, that sounds uh, like awful. diversity training shit today. And so horrible. you had to say like, hey, you know, when you were helping that customer, I just noticed an area of opportunity um, to blah, 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 to like, you know, up your metrics and blah, blah, blah. And you had to use phrases like that. You couldn't say, I noticed you doing something bad. You had to say, I noticed an area of opportunity. And oh like spin it, and they, they spent a month teaching you this shit. And um, at the time, I just thought it was kind of weird. It was like, damn, they clearly did their homework on kind of how to, like, you know, get people to. But now, when I'm learning more about um, Maoism, and I'm not an expert, but like I'm kind of diving into it now, um, I'm noticing all these things. And it's like, and it's not, you know, the the sort of dumb way to look at it is like, oh, like see, like Silicon Valley is communist, like they're run yeah. by China. But like, no, it's not that. It's like what they wanted to do is kind of like take these Maoist techniques, which they kind of viewed as a kind of social technology, and then sort of deracinate it and remove all the class content of it that was about like overthrowing, you know, your landlord or the capitalists or the imperialists, but still maintain. Um, and the, but then they needed a kind of spiritual um kind of motivational force to like fill the void that that you know was left when they took out the actual marxism of it um and convince people that they were you know making the world a better place so they were working toward like peter thiel says like working towards a cause that is like both personally and in like the greater world like really important and something yeah. they want to be involved with so right um, yeah it's interesting to think of the sort of what uh, critique of the cult of personality, you know, never really was like, you know, even in the DPRK, like they're not like, you know, uh, we've like read their uh, texts about like their statecraft and their philosophical ideas. None of them are like, you know, we should create a cult of personality or whatever, you know, like you can uh, argue that they have one, but that's not like their idea. That's an idea of people who look from the outside saying like, oh, this is a cult of personality. And that's, yes. like, kind of the idea that has been, like, captured. Like, the idea of, like, even Mao's, like, style, you know, his, like, aesthetic. Like, you know, mm -hmm. the, that aspect I mean, of Yeah, it. like, you could see yeah, people like wearing these kind of, like, fleeces like, that look like Mao suits a little bit. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> or, you know, like, uh, how, like, Kim Jong-il would wear the same, like, outfit every day. Like, you uh -huh. know, that's a very, uh, you know, very iconic, very, like, recognizable, uh, like, jumpsuit, kind of, that has, like, a certain aesthetic to it. It's the same type of principle, yeah, but, of course, like, it, like, the cult of personality thing, like, that, both that critique is designed to get around, like, engaging with any of the sort of class basis of, like, the challenge of Marxism or communism, mm -hmm. and uh, also, like, the implementation of it is. Yeah, it, it almost in a way, like the way you're describing it kind of reminds me of like Operation Wandering Soul and the kind of Orientalist uh, lens through which I think a lot of like high academics and military people looked at things that were going on in like DPRK in China <laughs> in a time of like, huh, these these Orientals have a strange fixation on having like a sovereign figurehead uh based yeah. on their confucian uh cultural yeah, programming yeah. to you know and so they kind of like but then it's interesting because then they take that and it's almost like they become victims of their own orientalism because then they turn around and are like huh okay so that's what we have to do here is like we have yeah. to create a kind of like pseudo-religious cult figure um that everybody will like blindly worship and will like mind control them because obviously the chinese and north koreans are probably brainwashing everybody um and you know it almost like it gives them 
them like a weird pass to do like nefarious things because they think that like that's how it works in the minds of these like superstitious orientals or um yeah you know, and that's like a very it's a very old like process it's like you know you can even see it like with hegel and the idea of oriental despotism or the way like hobbes oh, yeah. conceives of the sovereign uh you know making allegories to persian biblical kings and things like that there's yeah like uh there's these idea that oh we're sort of appropriateness. What you were saying kind of reminds me of how uh, like Sufi riddles and things like that were studied by the CIA uh, for, you know, to understand that, yeah, like Idris Shah. uh, That would be an interesting episode to do. But um, yeah, but uh, definitely like that is, uh, it's a, a very old sort of dynamic where there's like sort of an imagination of like the other as his enemy, but also it's an aspirational self. Like you can go back to, the like incipient British empire and like looking at the Ottoman empire and things like that. Like obviously like they're like the invidious Turks, but also they're like a maritime power that like is uh, very much like, you know, uh, if you look at like Christopher Marlowe's play Tamerlane or something like that, like Mm -hmm. Tamerlane, he's like the archetypal like invidious Turk, but at the same time, he is like an aspirational figure who seizes control of his own destiny and becomes like the ultimate sovereign you know so this is like something that is like really you can see this pattern like uh with the phenomenon of orientalism from like its very earliest kind of i mean of course orientalism is a difficult like term because it it has different connotations like and it can also just be inflated to like mean anything like you know you could do what edward saeed does and say like uh the ancient greeks had like orientalism which then it becomes completely ahistoricized and like not really tied to like 19th century like colonialism which is like the most like you know historically viable way to talk about this as a specific like systemic phenomenon but anyway this is completely like off in this is literally off in like fucking the satania system right now we're like you know this is this is not anywhere we're not even in nevadon anymore like so i feel like we should like yeah, wrap up or we something. could wrap yeah. up um I, did, I guess i just want to like the final thing maybe i, I want to mention is like okay so like there, you know uh the, the celestial seasonings like they you know now they're part of some like international conglomerate that's uh, that like runs all kind of brands that you would find in like whole foods or whatever and like it you know that is what it is but um in terms of like where they are today, are there still people that, you know, uh, worship the Urantia book or, you know, believe in it? It turns out there are. And um, the article of this, like, or this kind of sleepy time tea piece um, pointed out that there is still a group and they got their hands on an email uh, list that was being sent out um, back in, I think, 2010. Um, and it says right here, yeah, there there are indications that the Arantia crowd have taken the eugenicist teachings of the text to heart. Um, the Arantia Fellowship is putting its money where its mouth is in a 2010 email sent to readers with advanced information and forward-looking perspectives that are not suited for being posted on the website. A yeah. follower named Martin Greenhut writes that the trustees have convened a panel on eugenics. He names yeah. all of the panel members, the most striking of which is Kermit Anderson, who at that time was the genetic screening program director at Kaiser Permanente in California and the author of much genetics research. Um, and I looked up... 
Kermit Anderson. He is, in fact, um, a it was a program director for um, genetic screening and research uh, at Kaiser Permanente, I believe, in Los Angeles. And now, um, I mean, if you're into podcasts, uh, he has one. It's called Symmetry of Soul. And um, he does it with uh, what was the background of the other guy that... Uh, that oh yeah there's like yeah he was an atmospherics right yeah yeah he's the co-host is dr chris halverson these are educated people um who has a phd in physics from the university of colorado boulder and worked as a scientist at the national center for atmospheric research in boulder from 1987 to 2013 he discovered the urantia book in 1990 started leading a weekly study group in 95 and then um transformed it into a public discussion group called Perfecting Horizons Institute in 2013. Um, and so they have like a nonprofit corporation. Um, and uh, and then there's like a guy named Brad Garner who grew up, his parents were Urantia believers and uh, he does it as well. These, are, these people all seem to be in Colorado. This woman, Andrea Barnes, uh, discovered Urantia book in Fort Collins, Colorado in 1977. And like one day we'll get to Colorado because it's like kind of a sus state in a lot of ways um, with all the NORAD and kind of air force installations at Denver airport, but I digress. Um, so, I mean, people are still out there. They're relatively small um, and kind of under the radar, but their influence, these are pretty well-educated people and uh, they had some pretty high positions in, you know, government science and, you know, the private medical industry, like to this day, which is, you know, completely in line with Dr. William Sadler and Dr. John Kellogg and stuff. So, you know, they're still out there. Um, is there anything else maybe before we, uh, before we wrap up? I think that, uh, yeah, I think we covered everything that, uh, uh, you know, I would, I would have to say and more. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I think we did. I think, uh, yeah. Um, oh, you, you want to say something just real quick about the cult of Cosmopop? Like, we don't have to go into it, but it's just kind of funny. Like, oh, yeah, this just when came I, out this year. Uh, yeah, I, there's apparently some dude like in Arizona and to like near Tucson who uh goes by Gabriel of Urantia mm-hmm. and uh who's like a doomsday prophet, uh, and I guess is sort of vibing off the original Urantia teachings. Um, and, uh, he like, uh, yeah, he's had like a bunch of, uh, different kind of, uh, you know, failed prophecies, like kind of the similar to the ones we talked about where he's prophesying doomsday and a lot of sort of defectors, uh, from his cult. You can look, there's an article, uh, on him, uh, about on pleasekillme.com. Uh, that's kind of where I found yeah, it. Which I guess slash like a music, music website It's actually by, uh, uh, Joseph Flatley, I guess, who, uh, Dimitri has had some, uh, punch-ups with maybe in the past, but in- indirectly, uh, but yes, uh, if, uh, if, if you're so inclined, um, you could look up, uh, an episode from like two years ago of like, uh, Porkins policy radio, where it was the first time you ever heard my voice on the airwaves because I called in because, uh, Joseph Flatley has written a few books about, kind of different weird cults and conspiracy groups he had done one that was like it was called like satan goes to the mind control convention and in kind of sharp contrast with maybe his earlier work it was uh it was like him it was like a takedown of this kind of industry of people who you know these conventions for people that think they're 
they were MK Ultra victims or victims of cults and like how they're like charlatans running this, which might be true. But his kind of guide through the, his Virgil through this world is Lucian Greaves, the head of the Satanic Temple. And like, I thought that was so sus that he like trusted this guy who runs around like, like he seems like very curiously uh, really invested in debunking anybody who say, says they were like abused by satanic cults or like victims of MK Ultra. Um, and Joseph Flantley kind of just was like super cool with this guy and like thought he was awesome and like, <laughs> and just like a rational, you know, like fighting against these religious charlatans or something. And, um, and so I called it to like kind of call it out and like uh, kind of drag the, um, the satanic temple a little bit uh but so it was interesting when you sent me this article it's like written by joseph flatley he's one of these guys that seems to like be up on all the cults um so i mean maybe take it with a grain of salt i notice here that you know he's talking about the, this group is the global community communications alliance um and he i don't know joseph flatley went and visited them um they're their compound is like on the location of a, of a 17th century Jesuit mission, which is mm. kind, of, kind of interesting yeah. um, in New Mexico. Uh, and it says weirdly that GCCA is a new religious movement parentheses, though experts such as Rick Allen Ross and Lewis Jolly and West, Dr. Jolly West have labeled it a destructive cult. I don't know why he's like quoting Lewis Jolly and West. Uh, <laughs> it's like the most sketchy MK ultra scientist. Uh, he, he'll probably get his own full episode, but like, it just kind of and like Rick Ross, like uh, flatly is like very against. Gets confusing, but there's Doctor Rick Ross, not the rapper or the drug trafficker uh, or the drug dealer, but uh, there's Rick Ross and then there's Colin Ross, and they're both doctors that like are anti cult and like talk about MK Ultra a lot, and they're both kind of like a little bit sus in their own ways. They've both written like books and they go to these conferences all the time. But I think I, I don't know. Like presumably, uh, just flatly thinks that Rick ross is okay but colin ross is like a charlatan i don't know anyways this guy plays like this this guy gabriel of urantia has like a, a kind of this jam band like new age cult in uh arizona yeah he actually has a lot of like wealth apparently and tons of like uh assets like he owns some kind of uh like uh what's it called like a massage therapy spa or it i guess they also like do acupuncture um and yeah uh, energetic directional cleansing and that type of thing so uh yeah it's another uh modern sort of example of the influence of urantia that this guy has uh you know and you can see in some of his statements the kind of the echoes of some of the the urantia ideas uh you know he uh says things like it's uh time for the uh he says it is time on your for the father circuit to appropriate the judgment or whatever you know uh <laughs> and uh it, the i guess joseph flatley's take on this which may probably does have some truth to it is that this guy's like uh cult's uh endeavors are driven by his uh, failure to make it like as a normal musician um yeah. which i guess you know even charles manson you know had his desire to uh be a musician and he uh this guy gabriel rancher writes in his autobiography that uh the world doesn't need another john lennon or elvis presley they did nothing to uplift our troubled planet or bring about any real spiritual change the world needs a gabriel and with god's help and in his time that's what the world will get 
Wow. So yeah, okay. guy looks to be getting on in years. He looks older than Kenneth he Andrew. Is. He's does like in the an 90s, old boomer so. from Pittsburgh, yeah. and um, and it sounds like you know uh, his band Talius Van and the Bright and Morning Star. Interesting uh, Morning Star yeah. band plays what could most kindly be described as bland country rock. Uh, that sounds like exactly like the Grateful Dead, honestly. Um, that is an interesting name because the Bright and Morning Star. Yeah, that's like kind of the. Uh, you know, the, the biblical quote that people point to as like the connection between Jesus and Satan, uh, where oh, Jesus yeah. is also called the bright and morning star. Um, it yeah, feels almost it, like process church vibes a little bit because they were like weird Gnostics who believed in both. They worship both like Jesus and God and the devil and believe that yeah. they're just like two sides of the same thing. And uh, yeah, yeah the, honestly, the, this, uh, guy, this guy does sound um, pretty interesting. I guess he said that he had multiple recording contracts over the years, but, um, but he turned them down because the evil record company representatives wanted him to remove the spiritual content of his lyrics. Um, mm. And he did, he dubs his brand of music Cosmo Pop, and uh, and uh, uh, another funny thing in here is uh, he gave, in one YouTube video Gabriel addressed what made him different from all the other cult leaders and conspiracy theorists out there: faith in the Lord. Jesus Christ will live again, he said. That is our hope. There is no other hope. It's not in the Dracos. It's not in the Anunnaki. Not in any mortal race of another world. It's in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. If you put it anywhere else, you are a stupid asshole. That is the Pittsburgh answer. Nice. Um, it's kind of funny. Like, he brings up the Draco and the Anunnaki. Um, yeah. And the yeah, whole, his, his teaching borrows heavily from the Rancho book. Uh, and uh, The yeah. whole bright and morning star thing kind of reminds me of uh what stockhausen said where he was like i don't worship lucifer i've renounced him kind of implying like at one time i did which is it's interesting because yeah you kind of get that vibe where and i guess this uh this is similar even to the the miltonian satan in some way you know uh this is just like kind of throwing this out there but i i just feel that even though the book is definitely anti-satanic you kind of do get that vibe of like you know yeah, like it's it's unclear, you know, like there's like it's kind of antichrist, anti yeah. you know, anti-Christian in the sense of like it's there's pretending certain, to be Christ, but it's like not. Yeah, and there's a certain like uh gravity and like dominance of the satanic character. Like certainly in the Urantia book, he has this like tragic, you know, it's he's much he's more tragic even than he is in Paradise Lost, you could argue, in terms of like not in terms of the quality of the writing, but mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, the epicness of his fall, you know, and everything and the 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 all the, the grandeur sort of heaped around it. And yeah, it's uh it's interesting. And that's like, you know, uh yeah, that's part of the the eternal sort of dance, I guess, that uh, we do with the with the devil. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So and oh, and not surprisingly, technically, uh, they have you know this compound of theirs is called Camp Avalon, which like you can kind of book and I think go and uh, hang out at, and it it is in the very new agey like woo-woo capital of Sedona, Arizona, which is like, you hear people, it's like that, Ojai, California, and Taos, New Mexico are these three places that, I don't know if people think that they kind of exist on ley lines or um, if there's some kind of spiritual energy out there, or maybe it's just kind of, you know, otherworldly looking and beautiful, but there's like a huge concentration of like new agey um, little you know, little groups, cults, tendencies, um, and, and subcultures of all kinds in all of those places. So, um, 
yeah, like I guess if you, you know, you, you go out to Sedona, you're gonna find this ranchian cult compound. Um and uh and you can go hang out there if you want. Um yeah. but just know that I guess everybody there is a slave. Um <laughs> it's a high control group, so it's like probably bad. Uh yeah, but you can you can definitely jam to the sounds of Cosmo Pop. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll put it in the end here, and uh, you know. Yeah, there's some good Urantia linked music. Music, definitely, like definitely, there's some good Urantia linked music between licks and uh, and uh, the Cosmo Pop sounds. The picture of this group is really something. Uh, it's but, very almost like Midsummer. Yeah, it is a little bit Midsummer. Uh, it's also kind of like a multicolored, a, a less monochrome Bogwan situation, uh, and. I guess yeah, less multicultural and and less uh, and and less monochrome. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's uh, yeah, that's where that's where we're and kind of bulbous like like almost Star Wars like Uncle Owen and Yeah, type they houses. do look like Amparu's house. Yeah, weird. Okay. And, yeah, I'm looking. I am looking at this here. Like Rick Allen, like Joseph Flatley. By the way, he just writes. Rick Allen Ross is an internationally known cult expert and founder of the Cult Education Institute. He's been accepted and testified as a court expert in 11 states, and at least two of these cases have involved the GCCA. And I'm not saying that like you know everything Rick Ross done is bullshit, but I just think again, weird that he he takes Rick Ross seriously, but thinks Colin Ross is like full of shit, and like just their names are so confusing. Like I don't know, is it a psyop? I don't know. I think. I think we're yeah. good right now. So, you know, uh, fellow citizens of Satania. Yes. Until next time, stay vigilant. All right, peace out all. Quite deceived.